Given the subject matter of the book we're going to discuss this episode, we'd like to start by reflecting that we're recording on custodial land of the oldest living civilization in this world. Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have long-standing scientific knowledge traditions, which have developed knowledge about the natural and physical world through observation, prediction and hypothesis, testing, and making generalizations within specific contexts. These scientific methods have been practiced and transmitted from one generation to the next, and contribute to ways of knowing the world that are unique and complementary to Western scientific knowledge. This knowledge is transferred via cultural practices, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, story, ritual, dance, and song. Here in Brisbane, this is a contested space, so I pay my respects to both the Yagara people and the Turrbal people, and their elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the hopes, dreams, traditions and cultures of Aboriginal Australia. Here in our parts of Nam, also called Melbourne, Liz and I pay our respects to the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation, to their elders past and present, and to all members of any First Nations peoples listening now and in the future. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're reading Nation, which is kind of like if Lost was written properly. (laughs) The guest (laughs) is educator Dr. Charlotte Pizarro. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. We don't often get doctors on the show, so it's always exciting when we (laughs) do get one. I think we've only had, how many have we had, Liz? Maybe three or four? I don't know, actually. I'm, I've lost count. A, I think You're going to have a- to start keeping a tally board. <laughs> we should, we should. <laughs> Number <That's> of doctors. <laughs> um, and your PhD is in pedagogy, is that right? Yes, sort of. So it's about the way that we teach science in particular and how the ways that we teach science impact on people's um, understandings of science and also the way that they make decisions and argue using science. Mm. I see. This is this is very interesting to me. This is, this is <laughs> stuff that I love. I love it. So we're very happy to have you here. Uh, and you made no secret when we started talking about this podcast that this is your favourite Terry Pratchett book. This is my favourite Terry Pratchett book, and I recently read that it was also Terry's favourite Terry Pratchett book. Oh. So I'm quite oh. excited about that. It's an ode to science, um, and I really admire it for what it's trying to do. Right. Yeah. When did you first read it? I would have read this one not long after it came out. It's actually a book that I recommended um, in my courses that I taught at the University of Queensland for a long time, and that I was teaching those courses from about 2011, and the book was published in 2008, so it kind of been too long after it was published. In fact, I have a hardcover copy, so I must have got it pretty soon after it was published. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got onto Terry... 
uh, at college, when I started at college, a friend of mine recommended Hogfather, which is not the one that I would recommend to most new starters. Um, <laughs> but it was a, an interesting read. And after that, he lent me another one. I can't remember which one he loaned me after that. And from there, I just grew. And now I own all of them and multiple copies of some of them, including Nation. I have three copies. So, <laughs> do, you, just, do you have a special lending copy that you give to other people? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, one of my friends recently returned because I went, oh, I'm going to be on this podcast. I'm going to be on Pratt Chat. I'm recording Nation. Does anybody have any of my copies? <laughs> um, and so my friends went through their house and one of my friends sheepishly brought me back a copy she had that's got some um, extra appendices, shall we say, from her two- and four-year-old um, who have <laughs> drawn in some pretty colours um, all over some of the pages of the text. So that's quite oh. cute. That I might be my can... favourite copy now. I hope you can relay <laughs> their insights to us uh, as we discuss today. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, fantastic. Uh, well, we should get into it because it is, I mean, despite the fact that it is described as a young adult novel it's i mean i shouldn't say that because a lot of young adult novels get quite deep but it is quite deep and Mm -hmm. quite long about 400 pages in paperback so um we should get into it and we'll begin as we normally do with a reading of the blurb on the day the world ends mao is on his way home from the boy's island soon he will be a man and then the wave comes A huge wave dragging black night behind it and bringing a schooner which sails over and through the island rainforest. The village has gone. The nation, as it was, has gone. Now there's just Mao, who wears barely anything, a trouser man girl, who wears far too much, and an awful lot of big misunderstandings. Wise, witty, and filled with Terry Pratchett's inimitable comic satire, this is a terrific adventure that, quite literally, turns the world upside down. And I I didn't know what to make of that bit of the blurb until I got through the book, and then I was like, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) See what you mean. Interesting, interesting. Mm. Um, I got thrown by schooner because being from Adelaide, that is a measure of beer. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, I don't think you could drink uh, a sweet Judy full of beer. I Uh, reckon um, that priest could. Yeah, I reckon there's probably a few people who've tried, um, yeah. not to mention some of the characters in the book. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, look, this is almost Terry's last standalone book. The only one that he wrote after this was Dodger, which we've already covered on the show. And again, it's one that I had never really read. I didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, I sort of heard, I, I kind of thought I, when I heard that it was coming out, I thought, oh, it'll be another Discworld book. And then it wasn't. I'm like, oh. And at the time, I wasn't really getting into too many of his non-Discworld books, which, as I've said before, is kind of weird because some of my favourite ones of his have always been the non-Discworld ones. <laughs> so, yeah. It's strange because, like, I expected, quite frankly, this to be a bit crap. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it was, like, the cover, the fact that I didn't know anything about it, or that weird sort of, again, thing where if it's not Discworld, I assume it's going to be bad despite having tons of evidence that I personally like pretty much all of his non Discworld books. I just have this weird thing about it. So when we announced it on the podcast and so many people were like, this is my favorite book. I've been waiting for you to do this one. Here's all these questions. I was really taken aback and it was really fun to read. Like, it was just, and that shouldn't be a shock, but it was. So 
I mean, I guess shame on me for assuming it'd be bad for no real reason. It's hard to step out of somebody's, you know, oeuvre when that's what you're used to, when that's um, the reason that you might read them in the first place. Um, But, yeah, this is my favourite and my favourite standalone and um, it's, I don't think it's fairly named. I think it's, it's a little bit like Fight Club. I don't can we mention mm. other things like this? I mean, of course. Well, you can't mention Fight Club. That's one of the rules. Ah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> fair enough. Um, it's a little bit like Fight Club. I I avoided watching Fight Club for so long just because of its name, and now I think it should have been called The Paper Street Soap Company. That would have got me in it right from the outset. Um, but yeah. this is at the same time, it's such a perfect name for this book because I mean, nation. What is a nation? What makes a nation? It's also, you know, what is a human? What makes a human? What is science? What makes science? Um, what is faith? And what makes faith? And it asks all these great existential questions in a really accessible way. Um, so I've quite enjoyed it and enjoyed rereading it and re-listening to it again for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's my first time reading it and um, I think it's shot straight up into the the favourites. I find it very hard to rank them. But, uh, but I do, this is definitely a fave now. I really love it. So, yeah. And it, it, I mean, it starts with the equivalent of some cosmic turtle business, Liz, I guess, but it's new cosmic dolphin slash various other gods kind of business. Uh, yeah, and so I can deal different. with that. So, yeah. so, um, yeah, I, I actually didn't even draw that comparison. That's how far away from it was for me. So <laughs> I didn't sort of die of boredom immediately. So yeah. That's good. It's only a two-page creation story. It's not an on and on and on. But you don't know that when you open the book and it starts. <laughs> you, I was like, is this going to be the whole book? But I wouldn't have minded because it was actually just, it was it was interesting. So Yeah, and it's I looked at a few things up. One of my favorite things is creation myths. I studied them in university a little bit, and I, I certainly don't know all of the ones in the world, but I've read quite a few. And this sounds like a real one, but it is an original creation and it's very cool. But there are elements of it that are very definitely drawn from actual uh, South Pacific Islander sort of beliefs. Stuff like, you know, people's souls being dolphins and, and that kind of thing. It's just, but it is, it's beautiful. It's so wonderful. Mm. Mm. And it gives you a nice setup for the background. And I think it's a smart move to kind of just tell us the story. And then we don't need to be told it in the midst of everything else that's going on. We kind of have the gist of it already. Uh, also, for people who've wandered into this confused, thinking it's a Discworld book, they're immediately shown that it's not, just as I'm not sure that's not the intention, but it is a good way to be like, no, no, if you were expecting Discworld, back away now or brace yourself for something different. Yeah. Uh, but then we get straight into chapter one. And again, this is a chaptered book for those who are always surprised by this uh, development that Terry Pratchett does write books with chapters occasionally. This is a chaptered book. And chapter one is called, unfortunately for those of us living in 2021, The Plague, <laughs> uh, which uh, which talks about the Russian influenza. As far as I know, an entirely fictional pandemic. I mean, you know, it's very much like the Spanish flu or, or indeed COVID-19. Uh, <laughs> but it's awful. Like a lot of people are dying from it. Uh, and that sort of sets up a part of the plot. And I, it was interesting that, you know, this is what happens first. And I'm like, oh, is this book going to be all about people dying from plague? Because I'm, I'm really not about that right now. Uh, <laughs> I could use a break. 
But thankfully, no, that's sort of just a setup for one element of the plot and to propel some characters off to find some other characters. But I really, I enjoyed this a lot. Like, it's very Victorian cloak and dagger, steampunky kind of. I'm wearing a weird suit to protect me. And kind of the visual of that reminded me of 12 Monkeys, you know, the Terry Gilliam film where they send Bruce Willis back in time to try and stop this engineered disease getting out into the world. And when you see them in the future, they're wearing these very grimy kind of, like a like a hazmat suit, but just weird and slightly wrong. And uh, that's how I kind of imagined the, what, what do they call it? The um, the salvation suit. Salvation suit, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, gross, but weird. And I, I love that sort of immediate kind of, okay, well, this isn't the history that we're used to. Hmm. I thought it was interesting that the boat was called the Cuddy Wren because I looked up a thing about it and said that possibly it's to do with a song that's about sacrifice. So, like, human sacrifice, which was interesting because, like, are they going to send people off as some kind of human sacrifice or something? Which it was not what it was, but, I mean, it kind of is interesting. Well, there is a thread (laughs) of self-sacrifice as a a theme throughout the story. There are characters through the story that have been sacrificed for the story or are sacrificing themselves in order to keep the nation alive. And it's definitely something that continues through the book. I do like the very visual um, nature of this chapter too. You know, there's there's sentences like, this is worse than you can possibly imagine, said Sir Geoffrey, while red disinfectant dripped off the bottom of the salvation suit and puddled on the deck like blood. Like it's not um, very nice for us at the moment in, you know, thinking through what we've been going through, but at the same time it's like a, thank goodness, nothing, you know, hasn't got, quite so Ebola-like or, or visual um, what we're going through at the moment. Yeah. I, I don't think, actually, just on that, it doesn't give any specific date, I don't think, but you kind of the reference later on to specific scientists, I think, I think they say that Darwin is relatively recent, so that kind of gives you a rough kind of, when was that sort of end of the- She shook his hand when she was a child and he was famous enough for that to be impressive to her, but the, the grandmother who wouldn't like- him would know about him. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of late 19th century. I'm, I'm forgetting my Darwin dates. This is terrible. How embarrassing. Um, but he lives somewhere between 1200 and 1900. That's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but again, you know, it's an alternate history. So set in an alternative history of our world in the 1860s. There you go. Okay. There so that's, that's, that sounds about right. But I, but then I was thinking, what, what kind of disinfectant did they have then? And was it really red? I, there's just little details that you're not sure if they're real or not, but some of them don't really matter because they're just so evocative. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. It's probably just crushed up roses. Yeah. Uh, but this, this sets up the idea of the gentleman of last resort. What a great name. Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of secret agents of the crown who are off to find the heir because the Russian influenza has killed 137 uh, members or more of the royal family, and so they have to find the next in line to the throne. I and look, I'll be totally upfront. Um, this comes up again later in the book, and I forgot that they had definitely said yes. Uh, this guy is going to be king. I I was like, oh, is he going to be king, or is something else going to happen? And I was like, no, they told us right at the start. I totally <laughs> forgot afterwards because I was so swept up in everything else that was happening. Uh, but yes, they're off to find the heir who has become a governor of uh, some islands in the Southern Pelagic Ocean, not the South Pacific Ocean, 
because this is an alternate history and they've got to find him because he is going to be the new king. And along the way, they might also find his daughter who was en route to meet with him in another ship, the Sweet Judy. And uh, that's not a great place to be because once uh, the gentlemen of last resort are aboard this ship that they've commandeered uh, and offered a lot of money to send them there very quickly, we find, well, we catch up with the Sweet Judy, which is in the midst of a tsunami getting completely wrecked. Uh, and it's it's not good. And the first person we meet on board is the captain, uh, Roberts, who uh, is... He's a, I kind of love him. He's so barely in it, apart from the memories of another character. And yet I found him very, he's just really, what's the word we for? Just so well drawn. I enjoyed him hmm. so much. Uh, that little thing where Pratchett always has these characters that, you know, they form a little part of the story. They're in some corner somewhere. They're not really that important in the grand scheme of things. And yet he goes out of his way to make them very memorable. And he does that with pretty much the whole crew of the Sweet Judy who are featured, I think. But Roberts is is great. How do you come up with someone coming up with their own hymns because they're that religious? Like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Uh, but that's a quite a short scene. And um, we then go to uh, a bunch of islands, which... Now, and I got a bit lost with the names of the islands. I think the islands where the nation is are the Mothering Sunday Islands. Yes, but I the think ones so. that um, the governor is going to become king, he's governor of some neighbouring islands which have a different name, which is mentioned in the book. But I, I can't was it bank holiday it. ones? It's a, no, I think it's called the something else Sunday Islands because they're nearby. But they do go through that list later on in the book where they they talk about all the ridiculous names they've given the islands, and there are some very ridiculous ones in real life. But no, we go we go to the islands and we find. Mao, who is on the boys' island, doing his rite of passage. All the boys in his nation have to go to this other island where they basically just... I mean, it didn't seem like they had to do anything else. They just had to go there by themselves and survive for a certain amount of time. But they get left there on their own. So, they also have to make their own canoe and an axe to make it with. Oh, no, they leave the axe behind, don't they? So, they, mm. they use the axe. That's the secret. They have to make their own canoe and come home after having lived there and, you know, got their own food and everything. And then, then they come home, everybody... Goes, yeah, you're back home, and they have a big ceremony, and they get given their new man's soul. And they have a certain thing where they aren't supposed to scream. There's the oh, thing yes. with the knife where you don't scream. Oh yeah, oh. I read that a few times. I was like, oh wait, okay, I see. <laughs> yeah, that was visceral. It was a nice way of putting it without getting too much into the detail. I thought, um, but he's on his way home uh, after triumphantly deciding that the way he would show he was really good at this was burying his axe really hard into the tree on the island uh, when he encounters the wave as well. And he manages to survive it, but when he wakes up after having survived the wave, he heads back towards home and can't see anyone. And this is the very... I mean, this is the start of the book, and already, you know, my heart was in my throat, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, oh no. This is This is terrible. It took a hundred pages, basically, for me to accept that there weren't going to be survivors. I was kind of like, oh no, any moment there's going to be like a bunch of people, any moment now, any, and yeah. It's devastating that, that idea of coming home and finding no one. I love the idea he talks about the silver thread that he can see that draws him into the future. Mm. Um, and that thread breaking and he can't find his footing anymore in the future. He can't see what's going to happen. 
that broke my heart so bad. I was just like, oh, no, no. The thing that really got me is the, the guilt he felt about the fact that everyone would have been on the beach for him mm. because they were waiting for him to come back to become a man. So, I I mean, if that was me, I don't think I would deal with that guilt very well, even though it's entirely not his fault. It was just, and they probably, even if they hadn't been all on the beach, it wouldn't have made a difference because it went all the way up. Because he, as he figured out himself, like even if they'd been running up, the water would have come around the other side and got them. But yeah, the fact that they were just all out there waiting for him, I think, made it that extra bit more tragic. Yeah. Oh man. And then the, the whole the whole idea, like the in the next chapter, when it starts with him sort of figuring out that that's it, everybody's dead, and he starts finding all the bodies, and then he he goes into this sort of uh, fugue dream state where he goes outside of himself and is kind of watching himself do the necessary thing of of giving them all a burial in the traditional way which is where they they make a little cut to let the soul go out which i thought was a a beautiful little detail and then bury them in the deep water and send them off and it's it was just oh and when he gets to the end of that and he's like i'm just going to do the last body and then a voice speaks to him and says no 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 you're you're still alive and you realize that he was about to bury himself. And I like, oh man, this is full on. Um, but it just felt, I mean, I wonder, Pratchett always writes so beautifully about grief and about loss and about death. And th- I think though, this is possibly the most devastating, uh, of all of the writing that he's done about the topic. I believe this was written like uh, not long after. He received his diagnosis and I think yeah, he was right. confronting what, I mean, we talk a lot in about the Discord books and, and the way that, that death as a character is framed and, and his interactions with death. But I think in some ways this book was his way of working through some of that as well. Terry did receive his Alzheimer's diagnosis while finishing Nation and many folks suggested this was an influence on the book. But he said, that would be interesting if it were true, but it is even more interesting because it is not true. The first and quite complex draft had already been finished when I was diagnosed. That's from his acceptance speech for the Boston Globe Horn Award, won by Nation in 2009. The same speech in which he said, I believe Nation is the best book I have ever written or will write. You can read the whole thing in a slip of the keyboard. And death is a constant theme through the book. Emo, who's the creator, never talks to Mao. But Lokaha, the god of death, talks to Mao all the time Mm. and talks to Mao about who he is and what he can do and the power that he has as death. This is very serious. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know. It's a serious book. It's a serious book. Although there are jokes even in this bit, you know, and there's little details that come back later on. Like there's a bit where, you know, he feels like he's in a dream. That's how he describes this part of the book. And there's one of the figures in the dream is a, a ghost girl who tries to talk to him, but he doesn't really understand what she's saying. And that's it. It's one line. And then, you know, that character becomes a very major <laughs> character yes. and turns up very shortly after, um, which is, is pretty great. Uh, but yeah, it's, oh man. But this is also, you know, where he first starts to hear the, the grandfathers in his head, the, um, the sort of the elders of the nation who've been buried up in a cave in the hill. 
uh, or on the mountain, I should say. They've got a proper mountain on the nation. It's one of their claims to fame. They speak to him in his head, in all caps, uh, which is rude. They're shouting at him. They're always <laughs> shouting. And they want him to keep up the traditions. And they're angry with him at first. I thought, and I, like, I got off on a really bad foot with the grandfathers. I just hated them the whole time, which I'm sure is the point. Because he's done all this work, he's gone to all this effort, and they berate him for not singing the death chant. He's like, well, I never, I never learned it. I didn't know I was going to need it. And they just don't let up. They just never give him a break. Well, what do you think? Like, do, do you think they represent the worst elements of tradition in some ways? Because like, that's like the voice in his head that's telling him to do things that are a bit pointless and that berate him for not being good enough, despite him clearly to a reader being good enough. And there's also that whole thread about how who gets to be a grandfather. It's only like the best warriors and all these not, there's the specific example of the, the man who he, he like is taught by growing up. Is it Nawi? Nawi. Who, who is, should be a grandfather by, I mean, most people's standards, I think, but because he couldn't fight because he couldn't be a warrior, he's not considered even for that honor. Mm. So. I don't know. Like, they don't have to represent anything, but I kind of thought they were a way of sort of showing the worst elements of tradition because they were trying to get him to reject when later people come to the island as well. They're like, they're not of our blood. They're not this kind of thing. So like, yeah, they're the worst parts of the past to me. This might be taking it too far, but I wonder if they're represented. I mean, they're the structure of society. They're, they're this Mao is trying to remind himself these are the structures that exist. The structures that exist are patriarchal. Hmm. The, the grandfathers are, are symbolic of, of patriarchy. This is, these are the ways that we must live. We must continue to live these ways. You must follow the rules and traditions that we have set or you risk losing the nation. I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, what about the childrenism? Like it's, um, that sort of, I guess, um, lower C conservative, um, pressure that, that Mao perhaps feels to, to try and retain some sense of who he is and where he's come from too. It is like literally an old boys club. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 With yeah, the same rules so. for getting in as Tattersall's have in all the other boys <laughs> club. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I, mean, I mean, in this book, you know, Daphne does get into this old boys club in a way, uh, which is more than can be said for many of the ones that still exist in the real world here today. And just like, not to get too close to the end of the book, um, we'll discuss it more, but they are literally blocking them from knowledge mm. and progressing. Yeah. Like they're quite literally in the way. So, yeah. Yeah. And the longer it goes on for, the more in the way they are. So, yeah. I, yeah. I love too that they, they, they live in a, live in quotation marks. They, they exist in a cave. It, it's a, it's a literal echo chamber. Um, that that the grandfathers sit in <laughs> and yell at yes. Mao from. So oh, that's true. <laughs> so true. One thing I really like about the book is it never. Well, there's a certain point where it kind of does. Mao kind of thinks to himself about what the grandfather's voice in his head is, but it's never resolved for certain. Like we only because we we get the book mostly from the point of view of the two main characters. And so they never get sort of any kind of outside confirmation about what's going on. We just get their impression of it. And he hears these voices and wonders to himself what they are. And I love that that's not, we don't get told. Like we get to make up our own minds about that, which is, yeah, which is great. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, and a too. little bit, I think, a bit more of a deft way to handle it than in something like, say, Small Gods, where the gods are very definitely real. Um, and it's more about what people do with that knowledge, whereas here it's like, well, it could be real or not. And I think it's one of the reasons this isn't a Discworld book, because you can't, it's, it would be difficult to tell this story in a fantasy world where gods are explicitly real. I can't um, imagine him suddenly taking a post-structuralist approach to Discworld, <laughs> you know, burning down all of the the structures and rules and gods and 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 lore, L O R E, that he's established in the Discworld. Um, yeah. You couldn't do that in Discworld. No, I mean, I think he he plays fast and loose with some of it quite often, for usually for comedic reasons. But I think, yeah, there's some things that are just like. No, this is well established. We can't just decide this isn't true anymore. That would be weird. So there's definite reasons why this is a, a different kind of book. And there's reasons for Mao to sort of try and just keep going. The grandfathers kind of annoy him. I, I kind of like that basically they, he never sort of is like, I'll do what you say because it's the right thing to do. It's more he's going to, I'm going to do what you say because otherwise you're going to keep yelling at me, <laughs> jerks. Um, and he, he, the order in which he does things for them is a very interesting too because I think the first thing he really does for them is bring them beer, uh, even though they already have told him that they want him to um, rescue the god anchors, which is such a great phrase. And I love that there's never any more explanation for it than that, really. It's just what they call these stones that they use to make sacrifices to the gods. But it's such a good description, you know, the idea that these are the things that keep the gods here. Oh, I love that. But yeah, he uh, he tries to keep going. And uh, he also has some mysteries. He wakes up and there's like a, a weird round bit of metal with some food on it, which he doesn't know what it is. Uh, he's like, oh, a bit of metal. This is great. And then he goes off to look at what has become of the nation now that he's done this sort of horrible work and finds this trail of destruction into the forest, which he doesn't immediately follow up on, but eventually does go back to find out what's caused this destruction. Clearly something has smashed through the jungle and he eventually finds the wreck of this ship, the Sweet Judy, and meets this ghost girl who he saw while he was in his dream state. She's trying to dig a grave herself, although he doesn't really know that's what she's doing because they don't bury people and he's not seen a shovel before. <laughs> yeah, wow, it's such a tense meeting. It's not like, well, I guess it is, it is like a few other meetings between like, you know, a, a castaway and the person who lives on the island, but it's it goes very differently. And it seems much more realistic than a lot of a lot of these books, even though this is a comedy set in a parallel universe, because she she gets freaked out and uh, tries to shoot him with a pistol. But luckily for both of them, the pistol is wet and so it does not fire. There's just some sparks. And he thinks it's a gift for making fire. He takes it, which is such a beautiful kind of interaction. I really like that. And I was worried. I was I kind of throughout the book, I was like, oh, no, he's going to find out at some point that she was maybe going to shoot him. And then he does later on, and it, the way it works out is beautiful, I think. But, yeah, what a great first meeting. Well, it's like the dread thing hanging over, like, any rom-com where they meet because, like, it was a bet or because it was a magazine article or something. It's that thing that's going to cause a complication later. I also really love that she was called a ghost girl because literally that's how she looks to him. But, like, in Cantonese, like, white people are referred to as like guai for men or guai for like girls and stuff guai for 
for it's just like the different gendered ages for all of them and so like i got called guaymoy quite a lot because i look like one and literally means ghost girl and i just found that i wonder how many cultures that is literally the term well i taught in a few different aboriginal communities in queensland and one of them was arakoon up on cape york and they talk about carpach which means white nose so we were we were part of the Carpach people um, with our white noses sticking in their business probably, but um, it, it wasn't meant as any kind of jibe or, or dig. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, yeah, that's how we're going to describe you. You have white noses. Done. Yeah. Yeah. It's just literal. Mm. The Wick people in Arakoon are the traditional custodians of an extensive area of land over the western Cape York Peninsula in northern Queensland. Wikmukan is one of several languages spoken in this area. Well, because, like, guai kind of means demon as well, so it can be ghost demon. But, yeah. And I think that that actually Ataba, who's the priest who's going to turn up in a few moments um, Mm. as one of the few survivors from the local area, talks about um, Mao as a demon boy. So we've got the ghost girl and the demon boy. Yeah. Um, uh, (laughs) And they're, they're somewhat of a pair. A match made mm. somewhere, but probably not in heaven, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Match made in disaster. Yeah. In Lokaha's, like, area. Yes. Yeah, which, whatever that is called. Well, I mean, he sort of just hangs around this world, I think, is the kind of the nexus of worlds, as it turns out. Well, well, we'll get to that. So, they have met. He doesn't know who she is yet. But then the next chapter, we get her point of view. She, her name is Ermintrude. She is... The one survivor from the wreck of the Sweet Judy. She is the daughter of the governor of the neighboring islands. I shouldn't say neighboring. That makes it sound like they're right next door. They're a bit far away. Uh, cause he takes, it's, I'm not entirely sure how long he takes to get there. It's, I think it's, it's at least months, right? Yeah. It's several. It's, yeah. Two or three months. Does that sound about right? I think it was two months. Two months. Yeah. They talk about, yeah. Cause so she's there for quite a while. But I like that she immediately is introduced to us and then decides that she doesn't want to use the name <laughs> that she's been given and decides she's going to be called Daphne. And I, I forgot. And there's a bit near the end where someone calls her Ermintrude and it is weird. And I'm like, yep, th- that checks out. That's weird. Um, <laughs> great. But Was everyone getting a blank slate in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but she, you know, we've got Mao trying to make sense of this situation through the voice of the grandfathers, and she's trying to make sense of the situation through the etiquette that she's been taught. Like, oh, there's this this boy on the island. He's the only other person here. I should invite him to come here because I need his help. For tea. To bury the captain, but I should invite him for tea first. But also, I need a chaperone to do it properly. Yes. And where am I going to find a chaperone? Maybe the dead Captain Roberts can be my chaperone. He's here <laughs> after all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, those cards. She, the card she sends is amazing because, like, the, the joke that pays off later because she's like, do we sign it on both sides? And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know what she wrote on the other side. I won't think about that too deeply. And then later she's, like, drawn a picture to demonstrate to him, like, what to do. But he, like, because we get shown it, which is quite unusual, and I'm not sure if, like, Terry drew these himself. I hope he did. But there's a picture of him, like a stick figure, and the boat, and a big arrow pointing to the boat, which to us is like, yeah, come to the boat. He's like, oh, well, um, she wants me to come and throw a spear at the boat. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> That's great. It's so good. <laughs> it's just the best. 
Uh, and that, the way he describes it is just like, oh, there's just all these nonsense markings on one side. But on the other side, there was a message. And you're like, yeah. So good. <laughs> he can read important things like the water and the waves and the wind. Oh, and the- Yeah, that was great. I love that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so he he, they, he does turn so he up. throws a spear in the boat. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and I liked her reaction to that where she just sort of is shocked but then it's like, Maybe he's just throwing away his spear to show he's unarmed. I love that they're both being very positive about this and there's not like all this paranoia and, and fear beyond the, you know, initially shooting someone. But that's, that seems fairly. She's just been through a mutiny and a tsunami. I'd be a bit shaken up. Yeah. I think under the circumstances, we all forgive her for that. And we're just glad that it all worked out. He does deliver some beer to the grandfathers before he goes. Uh, he's got enough time to do that. And then there's the great sequence where he's drinking the tea and eating the terrible scones made with the yeah. sort of. Horrible weevily flour, it's lobster like, flour. Oh, oh she's yeah, crying lobster. because the bread is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, it was. Oh, it was so good. Um, but he does help her bury the captain. He does it in the the nation's way by um, giving him the little cut and, and burying him in the water. But then his hat bobs up to the surface, and I love that it's Daphne who says, "No, don't let it get away. He wants you to have it," which is probably like it's an early indicator. I just thought it was beautiful that she said that because up to that point we had no real inclination as to her feelings, spiritual or otherwise, but she clearly has some. Uh, Later on we find out that she's a bit disdainful of the organised religion she's been forced to sort of endure by her grandmother. But, yeah, it's just a beautiful moment, except that she then nearly drowns herself by going out to try and get it because clearly she doesn't either doesn't know how to swim, which I think tracks for a young woman of that era, uh, particularly uh, a noble woman would not be taught how to swim. So that's, you don't need to swim. Men um, can do that for you. Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, um, most <laughs> sailors and pirates didn't know how to swim either because if you fell over the boat, you weren't going to be able to swim anywhere where you were going to survive. So... You can swim back to the boat, though. Don't they have ropes and stuff? You throw the rope yeah. down, they climb the rope. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Probably her clothes as well were a big problem. Like people used to pretty much drown in their bathers, and that was specifically for swimming. Yeah, which is what happens when you knit your bathers. Mm. <laughs> At one stage too, she talks about you know taking off the layers of her clothing, and she's wearing about three different layers of pants and a skirt over the top. So this is still early in the book where she insists on wearing all of her usual clothes. It's that that's how she was brought up. It's what she must do. Um, mm. So she's probably wearing. All of that clothing. Yeah. That mm. would not help you float. <laughs> definitely, no. Definitely not. Um, but, you know, Mal dives in to save her. He kind of debates about it to himself a little bit. It's like, surely he's, he's confused that someone would go into the sea and not know how to swim. Uh, but eventually he's like, okay, she's not coming out by herself. I better go save her. But he, still very tired and worn out from all of his exertions, almost drowns as well and has that moment where he's like, no, I'm going to, I'm not going to give in. I could, I would, I would then get to rest, but I'm not going to do it. And he brings her back onto the shore. And it's just, yeah, it's one of several moments in the book where you just really feel, I just, I, I don't know, like uh, Pratchett, like, like I said, he, you know, he's always got these great things with the death and grief and he, he understands it, but Mao's continuing fight just to want to stay alive and carry on in the face of this enormous tragedy and incredible trauma just feels so, real to me and really struck me every time. Is this the point? 
point where he says one person is alone, two people are a nation, and she becomes the reason that he stays around, that with her he sees that he can have something more than solitude and and the loss of who he is and, and where he comes from. Even if it's not around here, like, it's it's in this region, like, even if it's not in this moment. Yeah. It is the moment where he, he thinks to himself, no, this does not happen. I, I will not let this happen. And does not happen becomes his mantra for deciding, you know, what should, what should happen and what, what, what should happen and what he wants to happen and what he's making choices about and, and what doesn't. Hmm. Yeah, because he has that chat with uh, Lokaha who kind of says, oh, this could happen. He's like, no. <laughs> He throws up the cakes and says, does not happen. Yeah. Isn't it because, like, up to this point, life has been happening to him. He's been buffeted along by the situation, and this is where he's actually resting back a bit of control. Before that, he's had the island telling him how to live his life, for mm. better or worse. And then the wave determines everything, and he's sort of in that thrall for a while. And then he is sort of being shouted about by the grandfathers. This is the kind of first time he's – well, not the first time. Like, it's the second time he chooses life when he's in the ocean – but that's just to keep living and continue being buffeted along by life. Here he's actually making a choice to do things to a degree his own way. Yeah, it's part of the things that are happening to him now that are not covered by what he's been taught. You know, even when he can't do the death chant, he knows that there is one, um, and that's why, you know, the grandfathers are shouting at him. But here he's like, well, there's no precedent for this. You know, a giant canoe has delivered a ghost girl onto the island who I've just helped her bury another trouser man and now she's drowning. Like, there's no, I have no rule book for this. I have no traditions. I have to decide what happens. Mm. And this is kind of the point where he starts to figure that out. And, and even then, you know, when other people from the same culture as him turn up, he's still, I think this is the part where he goes, I've just got to, decide for myself yeah it's also very quickly followed by his first encounter with this bird that can speak oh yeah the parrot <laughs> the parrot <laughs> <laughs> yes i've forgotten about that oh the parrot who just who pretty much just knows swears i mean look it's a great staple of, of nautical fiction but this parrot <laughs> in particular just takes the cake i mean terry does love a good comedy parrot um there's a great one eric as well <laughs> But, yeah, this this parrot is amazing. Um, I love, where is my grub, you vinegar face, old piss pot? That sounded like <laughs> trouser man talk, right enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because he makes several references to trouser man in, in a way that suggests that maybe he's met one, but also maybe not. Maybe he's just heard a lot of stories about them from other members of the nation. I got the impression of the latter, that it's, yeah, mm. yeah he's heard, there's stories about them. In, yeah. in the law. And as we find out, some of the locals can speak Trouser Man. I like that, though, that he's just like, oh, yeah, this sounds like something they say. <laughs> it's great. After Mao has rescued Daphne and he goes and he gets the blanket from the sweet Judy and he releases the parrot who yells at him in, in Trouser Man and then repeats back at him, does not happen, that he's just yelled at the sky. Mao actually decides that this is the first night he'll stand guard and he'll protect the nation. So he makes that his mission from this point on. Hmm. Hmm. 
But look, after being rescued from the sea, Daphne does recover. And this is where we get several times through the book. I, I liked how he paced out our knowledge of her backstory and her relationship with her family and where she's come from. I wanted just one thing from Daphne's backstory where she lives in the room where her great aunt had lived her whole life. And there's that whole thing about it. she didn't know much about the old woman but apparently a young man had smiled at her on her 21st birthday and she'd gone straight to bed with an attack of the vapors and stayed there, still gently vaporizing until she completely vaporized <laughs> at the age of 86, apparently because her body was fed up with having nothing to do. Like, oh, I was like, devastating. Is this a metaphor for something? Like, I was like, what? Like, is that a story she's been told or is it literally like what happened? Like, what's going on there? The opposite of what happens on Bridgerton. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. Like, did she genuinely just swoon herself into being a shut-in? Or did something shameful, like air quotes, happen and she was shut away for the good of the family? That's kind yeah, of that's how I Yeah, that's what I wonder. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that it was a euphemism told to her. Because as we find out, you know, she's very much been sheltered from certain things and she only has really any idea about relationships and sex and stuff because she's been listening to the maids under the stairs and in the kitchen where she feels more at home. So yeah, I think, I think, I think that's what's going on there. And this bit, you know, sort of reveals that a big part of her backstory is the, the relationship she has with her father revolved a lot around scientific discussions and that the things that they would do together were he buys her a telescope and they look at the stars. He takes her to meetings of the Royal Society and they debate about the merits of various scientists' views afterwards. And they share something very beautiful, I think, in this book that transcends the normal boundaries of what you would expect from the era in which they are and the the status that they hold in their society. You would expect her father to be cold and, or at least distant, but slightly approving. But instead they have this warm relationship based on a shared interest, which is really nice. Mm. Yeah, they've got the grandmother for the coldness. Yes. <laughs> she represents all that awful tradition. Maybe in much the same way as the grandfathers do. I think so. She's definitely the matriarch. You know, there are mm. jokes throughout that if the pandemic hadn't wiped out those 132 people, perhaps she would have had a go <laughs> yes. just for the chance for her son to be king. Uh, and I love that when she finds out, like, what has happened in the end, she's like, has my, she doesn't know about the pandemic either. She's like, has my grandmother been doing silly things with knives and poisons? <laughs> it's just so Yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, but look, after she wakes up, there's a lovely, lovely little scene where they have like a little moment of levity. They, they have a few laughs, even though they don't yet understand each other's language, which I thought was great. And now eventually it's like, okay, well, look, I should try and restore these god anchors, which we find out what they look like. They're these big blocks of stone. The way they're described, I kind of imagined them as being cube shaped with carvings of various things on the side. And he, he doesn't, I don't think he fetches any yet, but he decides this is a, something he should do. He sits on one of the god anchors, which results he in one of my favourite. his bum. Yeah, he that's one of my favourite lines in the whole book. <laughs> you know, he sits on one slightly disrespectfully or very disrespectfully and thinks about it. And this is where he starts to explicitly think about what's the deal with these gods? You know, like they let everybody drown by the, get drowned and he starts shouting at them and wondering. I don't Seinfeld him. What's the deal with these gods? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean it like that. But he does start to think about them a little critically in the sense that, you know, the grandfathers are telling me about this and, you know, I always thought that they 
blessed us and you, but they just let everybody die. What's, what's that all about? I think this is the first moment he experiences what philosophers call genuine doubt. Mm. Up until this point, he's kind of been a bit confused, but still certain that Imo exists, that Lokaha exists, that it's the grandfather's in his head, that the rules exist for a reason, that, that they protect him and enable him. And this is the first time he thinks, well, hang on, maybe not. He's having that moment. This is the first questioning of his existence to date. Yeah. And you get the feeling that he doesn't quite have the language. He has the language, but he doesn't necessarily have the the thought structure to make sense of these feelings and this doubt yet, which is why, you know, he, he has this angry reaction and then wonders, well, maybe maybe I am a demon. I'm in between having a, a boy's soul and a man's soul. Maybe there is a demon in here because why else would I say these awful things about the gods? And so he's trying to make sense of it based on what he already knows and the belief structure he's been brought up in. But he is, yeah, he's starting to have those doubts. I love that bit. I think, if anything, it reminds me of the West Wing when <laughs> dies. But spoilers. The, I know. It's, sorry, spoilers <laughs> for a very old TV 20 show. year old show. Uh, it's very hard to watch now considering what's happened in American politics since. But <laughs> dies and the president is in the, I think he's in the church, right? And he just lets God have it. I think everyone has a moment like that, regardless of what your beliefs are, where they are tested and you just are angry, whether that is religious or whether it's about, you know, when you first start to realize that the systems and, and uh, the structures of our culture are unfair and that there's injustice that's systemic, you know, and you realize that and you're like, but that's not okay. And it, it's, I often see it as this reawakening of the keen sense of justice that young children and, and young people have because it, if you have ever seen someone under the age of 10 wronged and they know it because they always know it like that is a fierce anger and a righteous one and i think you know we all get that sort of trained out of us that no look you know there's systems and you have to put up with a certain amount of unfairness and then at some point later in your life a lot of us have that moment where we're like no wait a minute why do we have to put up with this unfairness this is bullshit and this is Mao going through that stage which I love. So relatable. So good. And then they, they have another nice little moment where Daphne brings a book from the Sweet Judy and tries to use it to help them learn their language, which they do start to do. And then they start drawing pictures in the sand and it's all going very well until they draw mm. like a man and a woman. And Mao's like, oh, I can make that more accurate and draws breasts on it. And uh, <laughs> Daphne is not impressed and he does not understand what he has done wrong. And I like that he sort of has that memory of, oh, it's like when I did that thing up at the women's hut and people didn't like it and they wouldn't let me come in the room and I'm like, I don't understand why not, what's going on. It's, yeah, I thought that was delightful. <laughs> so I'm just looking at the pictures and they're just very charming. They are. <laughs> they are very charming. Yeah. And so he draws a second skirt on her top half just like she wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. She's like, I don't know what to do with this. You can just, we don't really get her point of view at that point. It's coming from Mal, but you can just imagine that she's like, um, I don't know what to do about this. I've never really been taught about this. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. It's a great commentary too on, again, it's coming back to that. Now these are the rules that she has around how she's supposed to live and she, and, and who gets to impose their rules here. And yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, but th before it can get any more awkward, uh, they are saved. <laughs> By the side of a canoe. There are survivors, not from the nation itself, but from nearby island, but not 
many survivors. There's just three. There's uh, an old man, a priest named Ataba, and there's a woman who does not speak and who for most of the book is known as the unknown woman because nobody knows who she is or exactly where she's come from. And she has a baby with her. And this this is a bit of a crisis. But first of all, Ataba's sort of demands to meet with the chiefs or an adult or and Mao's like, no, it's just me. It's just me. And you feel, I, I love how immediately he starts to feel the pride of like, no, this is my nation and I'm in charge now and you might not like it because I'm just a boy and not even a boy, but not yet a man, but tough. And he kind of does stand up for himself pretty much straight away, which I really loved. I was, I was worried when this happened that he might back down and, and sort of just do whatever Ataba said. But no, he stands up for himself, which I, I really liked. Because he's not just himself, he's the nation, so. Yeah. Uh, and he argues with the priest. Like, he carries on his, his sort of moment of doubt into a full-on sort of theological, philosophical argument with the priest, who doesn't really come up with any good answers for Mal. He kind of relies on dogma. I think his answers get better a little bit later on, but Ataba never really acquits himself that well, I don't think, in the consoling someone stakes. Because he's kind of like the blind faith kind of yeah. guy. He's not mm. interrogating it, so he it's not really, yeah. He can't offer answers because he doesn't have any, and he's probably never asked the questions. And he doesn't deal well when his own faith is challenged either, uh, which happens a little later in the book, um, when, you know, they find the extra god anchors. He's He really, yeah, he does not deal well with it at all. But first of all, we have to get on to Mal's night. That really sucks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, What's he going to do here? Yeah, the the baby needs milk or it's going to die, and the woman who's nursing him, I think, do they establish it? They're not even sure if it's her baby or they know it's it's not her baby. I can't remember. I I think think eventually they establish that it's hers, but it's not clear at this point in time. Yeah, but she's unable to feed it because she's borderline not able to do anything. We we don't really know what's going on with her, but we kind of realise later in the book that she's suffering from a severe trauma reaction and she just can't really do anything at this point. And they realise that unless they find some milk for this baby because it's too young for solid food, uh, it's going to die. And Mao takes this on as a quest, basically, and he's like, right, that's not going to happen. Does not happen. His mantra comes back and he comes up with this amazing plan like i i did not know how he was going to do this and as i was reading it and it's not that long a section it's only like about three or four pages but i was just like okay you are now my top 10 literary heroes of all time like this is one of the most amazing things anyone has ever done in any book because he well did someone else want to describe it i don't want to have all the fun (laughs) <laughs> because they don't really reveal exactly what happened. Like, you see him going to the women's place where we've seen him previously, like, make the beer. And he goes to that. I was like, oh, is he going to try and, like, turn that into milk in some way by adding extra things? But he does that. And he, he's talking about how spears aren't useful about against pigs and things at any point. I was like, oh, well, he's just, like, patting that out with some, like, nice phrases. But then he takes the beer and he leads it out there and he finds a sow. And then he rolls around in the mud. And then suddenly it's the next, like, he's... He's, he's giving, he's running past all the people on the beach now. He gives them a milk and he goes straight into the water to wash all the stink off him. And we're not quite sure what has gone down. Well, and I was like, and then he avoids Daphne a bunch of the next day because he's embarrassed or ashamed and she slowly figures it out. And I thought that maybe he was like embarrassed because he was like feeling bad because he like killed the sow and like drained its milk or something like that. But no, 
it's so much more wholesome yet horrifying than that. And she's like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And she keeps being like, oh, it's good. Yuck. Um, as she's like explaining. She's like, you yeah. can't do it. And she's <laughs> squeezing the teats, making these kinds of motions. You can't do this with a pig. So you must have done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I, I think I followed it at the first bit because I think even though you're right, it's just not explicit. I, I kind of did go, oh, God, is that really what he's going to do? And then he gets and then, a big drunk. Yeah, it's gets so the good. drunk so it doesn't notice too quickly. And you're like, oh god. And then when he, he comes back with the milk, Daphne thinks to keep it cold by sticking it in the, the stream to in the cold water to keep it for longer. And you know, you're like, okay, great, there's a bit of milk there, but they there's only enough for one day. And when they go, gonna need some more milk, I'm like, oh no, no, please don't make him do it again. Yeah, I had the same horror. I'm like, is this gonna be the rest of the book? Like every night and he goes out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> does this thing oh man i do like the way daphne describes it when she's sort of talking about his effort and how you know i think like even though it was gross it's like probably one of the more heroic things that anybody has ever done even though you know it's not what you would see knights doing <laughs> in the king and then the grandfathers try to shame him over it yeah oh, this is that i that's i lost all respect for them by that point i'm like i don't care who you are get out <laughs> <laughs> like well i'm not i'm not on team grandfather now I mean, not that I ever was. They were more about pride and seeming seeming good than actually, like, helping a baby survive, which is, you know, the starkest thing. It's gross. You can do. Yeah. Yeah. What jerks. What jerks. Um, but he's saved from having to do it again because other people are arriving. And he Mao's sort of thought that this might happen after the first people arrived. Because he's like, oh, well, there's, you know, we've got a fire, so people would see our smoke and know this is a good place to come. Um, and he, he also argues with the grandfather some more. And this is where he has that great moment where he starts to think about them. He says, Oh, maybe they're, they're just like parrots. Mm-hmm. They just say what I'm thinking back to me. And that's, I think that's as close as we get to him sort of thinking it's just, it's just a different part of my own voice, which I think is, is one of the explanations that we could have for them. Um, it doesn't quite explain everything. Um, uh, but I, I think, yeah, that's sort of where he's going with that moment. Hmm. But then um, Daphne has her moment to shine because the new people who arrive at the island include a pregnant woman, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't put together until afterwards that, oh, yeah, that's going to solve his having to milk a hog problem. But <laughs> suddenly the she has to help deliver a baby. Problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just the one that we all – at some point in your life, have to <laughs> grapple. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, it also like solves another problem because one of the new men who've arrived can speak Trouserman mm. and so can translate for them. And the woman who has a baby knows like all of the women things and can use the women place. Mm. We should introduce them. So the pregnant woman is Carle. Her husband is Milo, the strong, silent one, and the one who speaks Trouserman is his brother Pilu. Uh, they take her up to the woman's place. And the men are like, oh, I don't know if we should go in there. And the women are like, absolutely not. No, you shouldn't. And I was like, well, I'll help a little bit. I can go in a little bit because I'm not a man. But no, he's not really supposed to go in there either. <laughs> um, and this is, I like when I was sort of going back over this for my notes, I was like, surely this is where we really get an idea of what happened to Daphne's mum. Because Daphne's not there immediately. She's up at the Sweet Judy and Mal has to run off to to get her. 
And there is a reference. Uh, before this point, we do know that her mother has died, but we don't know the circumstances yet. We know something about they, like they aren't coming back. Yeah. And we're not sure what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she agrees to help and she sort of grabs the, the, the nautical medicine manual, which is mostly <laughs> about how to saw things off without killing someone. Which does which come in handy later. later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, look, and that's a very useful skill. I think we can all agree. Would you say, Liz, is that, was that a large part of, um, medical training? Well, a hundred percent of it. I didn't learn anything else. <laughs> uh, look, it's a useful, useful skill, but she does help. She does help with the birthing. And I love it that, you know, they want her to sing the song, which is like a recurring theme that they use songs as ways to convey knowledge or to help people. And, uh, she doesn't know the birthing song, of course. So she just sings. Another song, which is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And you've got Pilu outside, like, trying to translate this for the others to say what it means. And he complains about how hard it is because, you know, it's a song and it's metaphorical and he's trying to figure out what it means. And the way they interpret it as being a powerful song about the future of the of, of the son who's being born was beautiful. I loved it. And so they talk about what he's going to be called and reject the He'll name be- Twinkle. He'll be, yes, like a star guiding people in the dark. And I love that, like, basically, you can read in pretty much any interpretation you want onto anything if you really, really are determined. If the but. situation is right. Yeah. Mm. Well, did they? Did anyone sing any songs at, at your births? I don't, no one sang any songs at my know. birth. But if I ever had a know. child, I'm tempted to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to it now. It's very auspicious. It's good I attended song. someone else's birth and the, they were playing ABBA. In the surgical room which? when the baby was born. I can't remember which ABBA song, oh. but it was a good one. Waterloo, maybe? They're all good. Seems possibly. It, it was one of the ones that wasn't like Waterloo famous, okay. but isn't like is, like around Nina Pretty Ballerina level famous, maybe? <laughs> okay. Like, right. It wasn't Nina Pretty Ballerina. That's good. But, but I have wondered how that child reacts to ABBA in comparison to their siblings. That's like a good control and sample <laughs> yeah. Fair. um just a trauma reaction because like being born is pretty traumatic pretty traumatic yeah it's pretty full-on if you remember any of it i think yeah um but i also like this in this chapter after the the baby is born time the star just, is born the it's star a chapter is born, name yes. which is amazing great chapter name uh but then <laughs> time just skips forward two weeks and a bunch of stuff has happened um, a couple more people have arrived on the island and Daphne's just hanging out with the women up in the women's place, helping to look after the baby. And there's a lot of great language. I, I think this is the part, and I love this line where Daphne's quite annoyed that men all think women all speak the same language. And, but then she has to admit that at the moment, at least though, there's a little bit of truth in it because we're all speaking the language, which is baby. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't have to be exclusive to women, of course, but. We all, I think, can key in. There's certainly sort of primal instincts where you're like, we get we, the baby must not die. Like we must like, look after. We can find food for the baby, find shelter for the baby, make sure the baby is like always being watched by someone. We all kind of have that, I think, instinctive nature about us. She goes further too, though. She talks about the baby having its own language and that she mm. recognizes the language of other babies in this baby. That that there's actually no difference in the ways that babies talk to us. You know, they turn their head when you stroke their cheek because they're expecting the breast. They nod their head up and down, which is an approximation for our yes. And, yeah, so that she's starting to recognise that there are these universal 
aspects to language that might actually be inherent or, or natural rather than um, imposed or cultural. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that that sort of coincides too with the time in the book where she's spending so much time with them that she's also picking up the language herself mm. um, and not trying to teach them much English when, like she was with Mao. I think because there's so many of them um, that she's like, well, I should just learn your language. Like that's much more reasonable. And, and it's a yeah. significant point for later because like when they meet another group that have had a trouserman become one of them, He's not learned any of their language. He's making them all come to him. Whereas in Nation, they're kind of all meeting in the middle. All the two key characters are meeting in the middle, like Mal's learning some trouserman language and dressing a bit more like her people. And she's learning some of his language and dressing more like his people. So it's a lot more of a meeting of equals. Mm. I think too, she's, we see her sort of approach at the beginning of the book. She's approaching Mal with this kind of, Arrogance. Not, she doesn't know that she's arrogant, but she assumes that her way of living is the right way of living and that her knowledge is superior and her language is superior and there's this assumption of superiority and she kind of throws that away as she learns more about life on the island and, and um, being a part of the nation. And, and, yeah, that other person never loses that arrogance, never mm. abandons that superiority. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think this is also where she learns a bit about the knowledge that the people of the nation have, including how to make the beer, which is made from a substance they call mother of beer, which is a great name for it. Uh, <laughs> and they have this whole process where you have to spit in it and then sing the beer-making song, which we found out earlier because Mal made the beer for the, the grandfathers. And he knows the beer-making song. I can't remember why he knows it because it's some women who make the beer. I think it's because he was visiting as a boy. Is that right? It's a song that they sing to children as well, and it tells the story of of the god of air and his right. sons chasing oh. the moon, and yeah. Um, so it's it, quite a it's, long song. Yes, it's quite a long song, and it tells a story, and that story becomes relevant again later on in the book. But so he does know it because it's actually a part, as you said, a part of that transmission of understanding about the world through song that occurs on the nation. Mm. Yeah, which is which is beautiful. He's been putting it off, but Ataba in the next chapter persuades Mao that it's time to retrieve the other god anchors that are still missing from the lagoon where they've been washed up. Because we and we didn't talk much about this at the start, but when Mao first gets back to the nation, he talks about how its its shape has been changed by the passing of the wave. Like the, the lagoon is deeper now, bits of it have been smashed, parts of the other nearby islands have been sort of washed into it. It's not quite the same nation that he left uh, geographically as well as everything else. But, yes, some of the god anchors have been washed off the beach into the lagoon, so he goes looking for them, and he manages to bring up a couple, but then he finds at least one more than there should be. And everyone's like, what? Uh, but it's stuck under some coral, and uh, he has a big fight with Ataba about this. He doesn't want him to do anything about it. He's like, well, I think we should bring it up. Like, we should let's find it. And it sort of builds to this crescendo where Ataba goes out to check it out and goes down to look at it and doesn't really come back up. And this is sort of what I meant earlier when he's having his faith challenge that there's this sort of doctrine about what the god anchors are and what they mean, and there shouldn't be any more of them because where would they come from? But there is one, and he can't kind of avoid that 
fact. It's in front of his well, face. He can. Well, he can, and he tries to, Five. but then when he's confronted with it. Well, I think the whole thing is that his whole life has been dedicated to blind faith in his religion, and now that it's challenged, his whole thing is that he's trying to get back to a place he knows, and that's a place where there's only three god anchors, and so he's hellbent on destroying this fourth one. I don't think he notices he's drowning because his whole purpose of life is being challenged. So, yeah, he's so single-minded on this that, like, basically his life is irrelevant if it's got if there are four god anchors. So I think that kind of ties in with that. That's what I took from it too. You know, I don't think that a Taba is somebody who would deliberately try to take his own life. I think he's somebody who, even if he wanted to, would use his religion as a reason not to. But he is so distracted, I guess, by this this challenge that, yeah, as you say, he kind of ignores the fact that if he continues doing what he's doing, he's going to drown. He's not going to have yeah. enough air. Yeah. He's he's just, yeah, he's mad keen to, to destroy this evidence that things are not as they should be. Yeah. But again, Mal is not going to let him die. And he's not quite dead, but he is kind of, he's sort of drowning. I don't know if he's drowning. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit unclear because it gets a little bit metaphysical at this part and that's fine. But he's, he's under the water. He's clearly weak and there's a shark coming. And Mal remembers the story from earlier in the book that he re- remembered being told by his grandfather. Uh, well, not his grandfather, not his grandfather the, the, the horny old man, Nawi. Nawi. Yes. <laughs> yes, true. Um, he just will not talk, start like alluding to how much boning he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> he's, but it's in code. Like, Mal doesn't know that's what he's talking about. I am very naive then, Liz, because I didn't take that from it necessarily. But he's yes. all like, oh, you get left behind with the women and there's like some pretty good reasons for that. And he like keeps like bringing up the conversation. I mean, he doesn't say to- wink, wink, but he, he kind of gets close a couple of times, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But he's taught Mal this trick because Mal was nicer to him than the other boys. Because the reason that he doesn't go out and fight is he's been born with this lame leg. That, so he can't run very fast and he's, he's not got great strength, but he's become very smart. And that's sort of how he's made himself useful to the nation. Uh, and he teaches a lot of really useful information. And also, he's had this experience where he came up with a word that you could say to turn away a shark, and he tells Mao about this secret, and he says, yeah, and I tested it, because, you know, maybe it was just a coincidence, so I went out looking for a shark, and I did it again. (laughs) And you're like, this is a dangerous scientific experiment. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely came back and told the woman about it, for reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Uh but yeah, I, I, I just, I loved Grandad Nawi. He was, he's one of my favorite, like, sort of incidental characters in the book. He's really a huge part of shaping. Mal would have probably thought quite differently or taken longer to come to the conclusions he did or to question things. Like, I know he was already asking questions. That's why he and Nawi got along, but he's the only person in nation who really offered him answers that challenged societal structures. Cause to be a proper man, you had to go off and fight, and be of full fighting health, and all of that. And so when Mao asked him about like his leg, he's like, oh, actually, I think my leg might be a bit of a blessing, because the gods might have seen that I have a good mind, and they stopped me from having to waste that by going off and fighting and dying, and all that sort of thing. And then he goes, oh, are you not upset that you're not going to be put in the grandfather's cave when you die because of your leg? He's like, I- why would I want to go there? I'd rather be in the ocean free. 
So mm. he challenges a lot of the things that no one else in his life will. Yeah, and I also really loved his response when he tells Mal what to do to get rid of the shark. As we later learn, it's, it doesn't matter what you say. The the point is that you shout loudly and the shark will not like the loud noise suddenly in its face. Um, and you only get one chance because it probably will come back, but, you know, it'll work briefly. And Mal says to him, it's a trick. And he says, yeah, of course it's a trick. Like building a canoe is a trick. Like making beer is a trick. These are all tricks. Like tricks are what we're all about. And you're like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> It's awesome. It's not any less special just because you know how it's done. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, Still impressive. But look, you know, this amazing trick of fending off the shark and saving Ataba starts another legend about Mal, which are now starting to mount up. He's the only survivor on the nation. He might have a demon instead of a soul. Uh, he has now, you know, staved off Lokaha and fended off a shark. He's fetched milk, milk for a baby. Yeah, he's milked a hog. <laughs> Do, is there a legend started or does he just think it? Because later when, um, is it Pelu? Like the, the gregarious one who's like my favorite. Like, really, yeah. Um, when he's telling the story, he knows exactly what has happened, but, but, but he, he tells the story more impressive he, because he's so human. He embellishes it. Yeah. Which is, I think, where the legend comes from. Like, I think, I don't think Mao knows that this is a legend that's being started about him, but I do think that, you know, that's how Pelu is, is treating it. No, but I thought it was like he thinks that it seems like there's a legend about him being like a demon guy with no soul who oh, right. like can repel sharks. Because he comes back and he says, "Oh, you know, it saw I had no soul, and therefore it swam away." Whereas when he tells the story, when Pilu tells the story later, he's like, he pissed himself, and he still like stared down that shark because he's like a brave, cool guy. And I thought that that was more what what people thought of him. Like, it's not that they think he's a demon; they don't think he's superhuman. It's because he is so human and so caring that that's why they respect him. Well, yeah, but that's still a legend about him, I think. Yeah, that's a story that's spreading of how amazing he is. It's more like a reputation, I would have thought. Like, mm. a legend would be like, he has no soul and is a demon and blah, blah, blah. So, where was Pilu when Jesus was walking on water and making <laughs> that would be, I'd water into wine? love that story. Wine. <laughs> we needed that guy, yeah, to just go, oh, no, like, he just he just gave someone his bottle of wine. And uh, he's just a really great dude. It's um, just really shallow out there. there. If you, if you, yeah. yeah. But it looks deep, and uh, he was smart enough to know that. So you know, he's a pretty smart guy. Because <laughs> he's still he's talking him up. You know? He's still yeah. talking him up, uh, which I like. <laughs> we are, of course, imagining what Pilu would say about the nation verse version of Jesus, whose miracles, it seems, did not happen. Neither he nor we were there to witness the miracles of our world's Jesus. But look, Mal doesn't get off scot-free from this. He's been hardly sleeping at all. He's been up every night trying to guard the nation, watching the waves, and still doing all this other stuff. And this saving Ataba from the shark is kind of like the last straw, and he collapses, and he's probably going to die of exhaustion, I guess. Like, they don't really say what's going on, but he's he's basically... Yeah, he's just exhausted himself to the point of, of almost death. And in his mind, or or what's going on spiritually and psychologically, is he has strayed into the realm of Lokaha and is trying to escape, but he can't do it by himself. And this is where one of the newer survivors who's come to the island, the old lady named Mrs. Gurgle by Daphne, who can't pronounce her long other name, she sees that 
Daphne is like a woman of power. And I, I can't remember why. What was the reason why she decided that? There was something that made her realise this. So the, the old woman, Mrs. Gurgle, approaches Daphne and looks into her mind. And in Daphne's mind, we go back to England to the the day after her mother has died, giving birth to her baby brother. And we see the coffins on the stairs and Mrs. Gurgle suddenly appears beside Daphne in Daphne's memory and with Daphne helps her to pick up the little coffin, open it up, take the baby out and put the baby with the mother in, in the mother's coffin. It's again got that beautiful ambiguity that we keep talking about where you're not sure if this is something that, that has really happened, that could really happen in this alternative universe or is just a resetting in Daphne's mind, but it frees Daphne a little bit and it shows Mrs. Gurgle what Daphne is capable of. So there is some kind of connection mm. that's made there. Yeah. And she she thinks about it as the thing that she should have done but didn't do at the time. Mm. Such a wonderful thing to do, even if it's, you know, a bit grim because of the situation, but it just it does seem right. Uh, but because of that, she sees that she is a woman of power and it's like you have to go into Lokaha's domain and bring him back. And to do that, they're going to have to make her die. And I like that she says, is this, this going to work? Is it is it safe? And they're like, I don't know. And no, it's definitely not safe. Basically. It can either be safe or effective. Pick one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they poison her and then they hold this drop of water on a finger above her face and she starts to say something and then she goes into this other realm and finds Mao and brings him out. And there's this whole, you know, he's been running from Lokahan having this discussion with him and saying like, no, I'm not going to do what you want. I'm going to get to the, I can see the perfect world, which is what, how they kind of talk of one version of the afterlife. Um, and, uh, I'm going to get there, but then, you know, there's Lokahan chasing after him and is all around him. And, uh, then Daphne turns up and says, no, you're going the wrong way. You've got to go back this way. Uh, and they manage to escape, and then she wakes up, and the drop falls on her face. And it's this great thing, like, it can take forever, it's like a dream, but it only happens in a split second in the real world. Um, it was great. And it, I think it's sort of the most explicit bit of magical stuff that happens in the book, because there's all oh. these fish that she sees in the realm of Lokaha, the silver fish, and they ask her some questions about this, and uh, later on, Mrs. Gogol picks one out of the air, and she eats it. <laughs> Which is great. Well, she swallows it. Again, there's this ambiguity of like, did this all really happen? Was it a bit of a shared dream? Oh, well, maybe it did because Mrs. Gurgle seems to have caught. But in the end, does it really matter? You know, it's this mm. beautiful moment between the two of them. And then, then we have a moment where Daphne decides she needs a chaperone again. <laughs> yes. So the, the grandmothers call to Daphne and they say, Daphne, comfort him, go to him, care for him show him warmth and love. And so she lies down on the mat with the sleeping Mao and cuddles him and wonders whether Mrs. Gurgle is an adequate chaperone or whether she'll get into trouble for this later. <laughs> That's right. Oh, so good. Just quietly, every time someone said Mrs. Gurgle, I thought of the Boston Gurgles in the book. So that was quite the experience. I li and I kind of like that that happens and several other things in the book happen and there's never... You know, there's clearly care and regard and love between the two of them, but it's not played like any kind of traditional or even a non-traditional romance, really. I love that. 
it's such an evolution for Terry too yeah. from, you know, the days of is it Mort where there's basically two women and they're both tropes. Yeah. Um, and they're both there as Mort's love interests right through to We Free Men and that evolution of, of women in Terry's books that this is just this, you know, Daphne has a role to play in changing the world in this book, in helping the nation find out who and what it is. Helping, not doing two or four, but helping. And um, it's so much more agentic and, and natural than some of the early books. Yeah. And she has a, it's kind of like they've both got their own stories throughout the book, I think, too. Mm. And they're intertwined mm. in important ways, but they both start in different points and they both end in different points. And I, yeah, it's kind of beautiful. And there's that great moment later on where it could have been a romance and it just, and it doesn't happen. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Cause yeah, I, cause, you know, we, we kind of, I don't know about you. I wasn't really shipping them hard, but I'm like, but if they did, it would make total sense, which again is a contrast to those early uh, Pratchett books where there are these romances where you're like, I don't know why these two people are together. It's just because you want They're them there. to be. There's no, there's no spark here. You haven't written any realistic or plausible kind of reason for them to love each other. They but don't even have any totally... common experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you would totally buy it for Mal and Daphne if it did happen. But also, it's very satisfying that it doesn't. Mm. But yeah, Daphne uh, gets spoken to by the grandmothers a couple of times because the other thing they want her to do is to help him or convince him to open the grandfather's cave, to roll back the stone. Rolling Stones concert. Yeah, and this, <laughs> the, the, the chapter is called Rolling the Stone. And eventually, that's exactly what they do. They get some help from some of the other people on the island roll back the stone and Daphne and Mao and Ataba go in with lamps and torches and they see these rows and rows and rows of the corpses of the grandfathers who really are in there. They're all sitting sort of next to each other in a horribly domino-like fashion, which becomes relevant. But they make it all the way to the back of the cave briefly before they accidentally knock one over and release this sort of choking dust that threatens to, to kill them all. And they see these statues which... Ataba and Mao sort of recognise as the gods. They don't get a good look, though, but Daphne does. Uh, unfortunately, they have to run away to escape the dust as all of the ancestors fall over and knock each other over, which uh, it reminded me, uh, this, I can't remember what film it is, this one where somebody, like, you know, kicks a motorcycle and all these, like, Harley Davidson motorcycles fall over. Oh, yeah, it's outside a bar, isn't it? Yeah, yes. and then, like, the bikers all come out to beat up whoever did it. I can't remember what film that is, but it'll be in the show notes. It reminded me a bit of that. Do they put the new dead grandfathers at the front of the cave and surely are they running out of room? Because like, is it implied that they haven't seen this, the gods in a long time? Well, from memory, they do have to go a little way before they find the first grandfather. I don't think they're right at the entrance of the of the cave. Okay, so there's like more room for dead grandfathers yeah. available. I guess okay. so. <laughs> and possibly they could go further back too, I guess. But it, I think, yeah. But think the point they is they haven't the- seen... The stuff in generations yeah. back at the back. Yeah, exactly. And I guess if every one of those grandfather represents one generation, and I, I can't remember if they give a number, but it seems like there's like at least a hundred of them in there. So, or at least 50, like it's a lot. So it goes back quite a long time, which becomes important later on. But they, they also see more of the white stone, like the steps inside the cave are made out of the same white stone as the god anchors, which is like, Oh, this is a bit weird. So there's something odd going on. And at this point, like, not having read it before, I was like, oh, 
Sure, this isn't going to go where I think, because like the obvious thing that this is pointing to is a, a cargo cult story. Europeans came here before, they built a bunch of stuff, and you're like, no, it's not going to go there, is it? And look, we'll get to where it goes uh, later on. But uh, I was I was a little bit worried, but not very worried, because I was like, no, I don't think that's what's going to have happened. This is going to be something more interesting than that. So anyway, we don't get any answers there. Uh, but on the way out, Ataba falls over, He he's struggling to breathe. So Mao carries him out of the cave, and when they come out, they find that the other islanders who are waiting for them are not alone. There are two trouser men there, and not any two trouser men. They are two members of the crew of the Sweet Judy who were part of a mutiny and got put into a boat over the side, and they have guns, and they do not look very friendly, and Daphne sort of talks to them and tries to convince them that maybe, you know, they should just take her as a hostage and leave everyone else alone. But then Ataba wakes up from having come out of the cave, charges them, and they shoot him dead. It's one of those moments in a book where you're just like, oh, oh no, everything's going to go wrong now. This is not good. And it doesn't quite, you know, not everything goes wrong, but... I, I The incident was necessary to spark off the rest of the plot, but do you also think that priest had to die at this point in the story because like where could his character have gone after being confronted with the fact that the godstones aren't what they really are and that his whole life is built on a lie because i think if he'd survived the rest of the book would have just been him freaking the fuck out the whole time <laughs> like i think he had to be killed off because otherwise he'd been too challenged in his ways like he, finding out one more made him nearly drown himself trying to destroy it this would have like, that's why he charges the trouser man i think because he's just like not with it right now. Mm. Well, I think he he's inspired by what he's seen. What he's seen is just confirmed his beliefs for him, act, mm. whether or not they should have been. That's what he's chosen to interpret down in the cave. And and so I think when he charges Polgrave and Foxlip, he's actually um, inspired by that. Um, but I think you're right. It hadn't occurred to me before, but I think you're right. You know, in some ways, if he had continued in the book as a character, managing his reactions and and um, his behaviour would have been a, a challenge for the author. So I do really like your interpretation that he's like charged up with confirmation at that point because I think that makes a lot more sense for why he acts like that in that moment. Mm. And it's a kind of nicer place for him to be in when he dies, I think, as well. Yeah, and I mean, that's how it's described in the book. He's charged up with the memory of the gods and the confirmation that he's right. So, yeah, it's it's quite a moment for him, and then it all ends in horrible tragedy. Mm. But then everyone sits around and drinks a beer and it's fine. Yeah, but I think also <laughs> Mao's reaction to it. Beer solves all problems. <laughs> yeah, because even though, you know, Mao did not see eye to eye with the Taba and would have viciously disagreed with his interpretation of what they just saw in the cave, uh, certainly when he gets a better chance to see it later on, he's still outraged and his relationship with the man doesn't taint anything about his reaction. But also mm. I love that he has absolute faith in Daphne at this point who kind of takes charge of the situation and persuades them to take her off by herself and leave everybody else alone. And Mal not being able to follow exactly what she's saying because she's speaking in Trouserman still knows that she's up to something. I should trust her and we should follow her. I know where she's going, but let's do it at a distance. And she does indeed have a plan. She takes them to a hut in the women's place and offers them some beer. She brings it out in the mother of beer stage 
in the shells that they used to to drink from and she spits into one and she sings the the original song and she sort of very calculatingly doesn't sing the song that she sang when she learned to make the beer which was uh what was it baba black sheep baba black sheep yeah which she sings like 16 times instead she says no i ha- that won't work i have to sing the original version and then she drinks some to show that it's not poison and then she says to the others, now you have to do this. Like, you've got to spit in it and, and sing the song. Like, it's an important custom. Please do it. And Foxlip, who's the one who's shot the Taba, he's like, I'm not singing. I'm not speaking that horrible language. No, I'm just going to drink. And he drinks it immediately. And it kills him. Stone dead. He's poisoned. Pretty much instantly. Polgrave, the other one, uh, stands up and is like, no, I'm going to shoot you. But he's put his guns down while he's drinking. So she smashes him in the face with the um, with the shell and grabs his guns and says, "You get out of here! You killed their priest. You're in big trouble." Uh, and he legs it. And I just, I mean, wow, such a great plan, uh, well executed, but also throughout just this real like moral doubt about am I doing the right thing mm. that fully carries into the rest of the chapter where she insists to Mao and the others that they put her on trial for murder. Because she's like, maybe it was the right thing, maybe it wasn't, but I don't feel like it's okay for me to decide that. And I, it's interesting because I think that dovetails nicely into something we were talking about at the end of uh, the the last book. Please help me out. Why am I forgetting the name of the it? The Fifth Elephant. The Fifth Elephant. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you. Why do we both forget that? Um, <laughs> thank goodness you are here. But it, uh, but it kind of dovetails into that. I still have very mixed feelings about the end where Vimes kills Wolfgang. And I think Derry does a pretty good job of indicating that there probably isn't another way to, to stop him in the circumstances. But there is that bit where Vimes is like, if you say the cool thing at the time when you kill someone, well, then you're a murderer. It doesn't matter why you do it. Like, cause you are brushing it off and going, that's fine. And mm-hmm. this is like the opposite of that attitude, not the opposite of Vimes's attitude, but the opposite of the one he's talking about where she's just full of it. I don't like, I don't see another way out of this. And I've thought about it beforehand and I've planned out how to do it. And I've done it on purpose. And sure, these guys are murderers and they might kill everyone, but is it okay? And she insists that she can't be the one to decide that and makes them give her a trial, which also means she gives them the whole background about the mutiny and who these men are and who the man who was leading the mutiny Cox was. Wow. Real nasty piece of work. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, like one of the most horrible people. I mean, they're all pretty horrible the mutineers, but po- Cox is, is possibly one of the worst people <laughs> that Terry Pratchett ever wrote. Um, what an asshole. Yeah. yeah a real she- patriarchy name. Sorry to anyone. I'm friends <laughs> with that last name, but in, used in this context, I feel like it's deliberate. Yes. Yes. When she's going through this, I guess, process of doing a murder, um, she, she is thinking, you know, about those moments of humanity that Polgrave and Foxlip share too, like, you, you know, where they actually use their manners and, and that have been mm. patiently taught to them by their mothers. And she sort of draws on that humanity in a really interesting way, but it's so highly contrasted with their racism mm. as well. So the language that they're using is definitely not polite in the ways that they talk about the nation and the people of the mm. nation. And it's that that ultimately kills one of them mm. or both of them eventually. It's because they refuse to see people not like them as people. Mm. Yeah. They cause their own death. It's real poetic justice um, as much as, you know, Daphne feels like it's mediated by her. So she has culpability 
yeah, it feels like really, you know, in a way, they're hoist on their own petard of racism and disregard mm. for other people in general, in fact, because they also don't ever really see her as much of a threat. Although, they, you know, there is that whole bit where they're like, oh, yeah, no, we don't trust you. And there's the whole, you know, Princess Bride style thing. Oh, you thought I'd, you're not stupid enough to put it in my cup. I'll put it in your cup. Like, yeah, I thought that was a nice touch as well that she outsmarts them. And it's not because they're like, oh, you're just a little girl. You can't hurt us. It's because she is generally just smarter than them and, and very, you know, cunningly comes up with this plan. So, yeah, I thought that was really well plotted. This is a bit of a crisis. that They're worried about this, not just because these two have arrived, but because they tell Daphne that Cox, the leader of the mutineers, has met up with the raiders, who have been a shadow over the whole book. They've been wondering if the raiders are going to turn up. They are described as cannibals, uh, but certainly they are murderers. They're pretty awful. Like, nobody in the uh, in the islands likes them. They kill people and take what they want. They're, they're a bit like South Pelagic Vikings, in a way, except without the trading part. Um, <laughs> they and just, the cannibalism. They just pillage, yeah, and, and, and eat people. And look, just the sort of thing that Daphne's grandmother thought the whole island area would be like. So it also is, is fitting into those stereotypes a bit. So they're, they're worrying about that, and they start preparing for the raiders, including taking the cannons out of the Sweet Judy as wrecked as they are, and doing their best to fix them up and put them up on the hill over the lagoon. But Daphne also takes this opportunity to take Mal back to the cave because they realise that it is a cave that opens to the sea, but the entrance to it was kind of hidden. And so they go in that way, and now that they've been in and out, it's kind of cleaned out a bit and the air's breathable, and they have a good look. How would you describe this chamber? I mean, I, I sort of saw it in my brain quite clearly when they were looking at it because it's got a domed roof with glass in it, and I'm like, it's like an observatory, kind of, almost. Mm. And it's got all this, it's got these statues in it, some of which have fallen down, and it's got this gold in there. Uh, there's a globe of, of the world, which Daphne shows to him. It's like, look, this is all made by your ancestors. And she realizes that the song that you were talking about earlier, Charlotte, of the brothers uh, chasing each other is a story handed down of their ancestors who circumnavigated the globe sailed all the way around the world, visited all these different lands, had all this advanced scientific knowledge, like they understood the planets and the stars, and that the brothers themselves are the moons of Jupiter, and, mm. and Jupiter is air. And there's that great bit at one point in the book where Daphne's like, oh, and like the symbol for Jupiter also is the symbol for air. I wonder if that's related to, oh, okay. And there's these great parallels. And this is the bit where it's like, okay, great. It's not like a, oh, you're secretly Europeans all along book. Thank God for that. Uh, it's like, no, you are the secret amazing civilization from thousands of years ago that did everything before we ever did. I mean, they're basically Atlanteans, to put it in context of myths that we have now, except not Greeks, which is good, I think. Well, it's not really a myth, is it? Like, because there is like the whole thing about how Pacific Island cultures traveled across vast swathes of ocean mm that people shouldn't have been able to travel, but they must have been able to because they must have had advanced scientific knowledge. So I assume it's based on the fact that that is actually true. Yeah. There's a very European attitude to anything that non-Europeans did any time mm. before mm. a few hundred years ago, isn't it? It's like when people talked about the pyramids and go, oh, they must have had aliens to help them, must have had aliens. Like, no, they didn't have aliens. They're just good at maths. And they had massive gangs Slaves. of workers who they paid in beer. You or, know, also or probably some. But- yeah, awesome slaves, yes, whipping. that also happened. Yeah. But, it, but yeah. you know, they, they had the know-how and uh, they could do it. But people are like, nah, it must have been aliens. No, <laughs> not aliens. Yeah, so it's <laughs> this, this great revelation of their past 
they don't explicitly, because they don't know, you know, they don't talk about what's happened to this civilization. I mean, it's kind of implied or, or suggested that maybe this was not the first great wave and that there could have been others, um, which kind of makes sense because the, the tattoo that all of the islanders get is this sunset and the big wave in front of the sun. But, yeah. There's also in the trial, um, I love the trial scene, that version of democracy and, and justice. But in the trial, you know, that Daphne asks, well, what happens if, if I'm sent away or, you know, if I'm found guilty, am I sent away or am I put to death or what happens? And they tell the story, you know, of, well, one time we did have to do that. We sent somebody away and they weren't allowed to come back. And they sailed around the world. And one day they returned to us after many years. And it's sort of told as almost a, a mythic um, tale, but it, it, it's, it's what inspires Daphne with the idea that, well, hang on, that actually could have happened. Um, and that's what's happened here with what's been shown to me in the cave. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great oh, scene. Great. I, I love it as well. And everything about this situation is like yeah and Mao's kind of like he takes it in his stride a little bit i mean he's wowed by it but he's also like yeah i mean i knew we were great but now we're even greater than i thought we were <laughs> it's like you know it doesn't change his opinion he's not gone from oh the nation sucks to wow the nation's cool he's going yeah we are cool and look we've we've been cool for ages <laughs> which i i like that that's his attitude to it uh because he doesn't he also doesn't have like a lot of context for what all of it means beyond how daphne explains it to him and a lot of this stuff is new to him, like the idea that the Earth is a globe, which his ancestors knew, but which he did not know, because also it's not particularly useful information to him right now. But now he's like, yeah, yeah. And I love that the globe is upside down because, you know, this is the Southern Hemisphere and the nation's ancestors saw it as the top of the world. And mm. why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? We'll come back to the map in the book, I think, about this. But it is great. But look, they don't have much time before the Raiders do show up. Uh, there's a bit of a mist. Mao's been drilling everyone, trying to get them to be ready in case they turn up. And in fact, he does an emergency practice drill, which is great. And as a teacher, I love this because Daphne tells them off and she says, you can't do things for them. Stop doing things for them. You have to enable and empower them to do things for themselves. Tell them what you need done and let them figure it out. Yeah. Um, and as a teacher, I just love that pushing back and giving the nation as nationals. The nation people? Nationers? N-nations? I've been calling them islanders, but it's not. This is something actually in the book because Mao's island is the nation. And then there's Little Nation, which is the little island that's sort of part of the nation. And then there's the Boys Island, which is not it's sort of a part of the, the nation, but also separate. But then there's all the other islands in the chain that are not the nation, but they're clearly, you know, part of the same culture. And people come to the nation because they're the, the big enough island that they've got all the cool stuff. They've got the proper mountain. They've got the cave of the grandfathers. They've got the god anchors. And no one else has got those. And they've got enough resources that they're able to trade occasionally with trouser men who arrive, which is why they've got a few of these metal kettles that they don't know how to make at the moment. And that's their source of pride. You know, we are the, the biggest and best of the islands but they're all part of the same culture. And now everybody's sort of washing up there to live there. It's like, well, are you going to, is the nation going to extend to the other islands now? Or is it just this one? And I don't think that's really answered, but it does feel like the nation expands in this book and not in a colonialist way. We're just growing bigger. We're just becoming more than we used to be kind of way. 
but that also doesn't really answer the question. But I think, you know, it's called Nation because they, there isn't another one as no. far as they're concerned. So they don't need another name for it, you know, and which, which is kind of funny because later on when they talk about the trouser men and their beliefs, they talk about the fact that their God is just called God and there's only one and they're, they're quite disdainful of that. And I'm like, well, your nation's just called Nation and you've only got one. <laughs> Why don't you have a name for it? You don't need one. So, yeah, I thought that was funny. But, yeah, look, the raiders do arrive, and Cox is with them. He's made himself their new chief by killing the old chief. But the raiders see the cannons, and they're like, well, this isn't as easy as you told us it would be. And they're a bit worried. But Mal goes down with Pillow and Daphne and Milo, who um, we haven't talked about much about Milo. He's the one who doesn't speak much, and he's enormously tall and strong. I love him. I love a strong silent type of character. <laughs> He's great. Um, and he has his moment in this scene too, which is great as well. But they go down to meet with them and their tradition is, well, we don't have to have a whole war if our chiefs battle it out and then whoever wins, wins. And you're like, oh, that's good. And I, I remember, I remember being in high school and thinking, wouldn't that be a better way to have wars? Like just, you know, just send one person from each country and then it's over. And then as soon as you think about it, you're like, well, that's not, that's still not great. Like that's still killing the Hunger Games. Yeah, exactly. I was about to write. (laughs) Um, It's a very teenage momentary philosophical solution that doesn't bear any scrutiny whatsoever. I don't know. It makes for a fun book series, but. Well, but true. A compelling one. Mm. Yes. Against doing it in the first place, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But look, you know, this is the way the Raiders like to do things, Um, particularly when they fire one of the cannons and blow up some of their canoes. But it's not just anyone who fires it. It's the unknown woman. Who is now known as the paper vine woman. I love that her identity evolves through the book as well yeah. as she comes out of her trauma. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I love the revelation that her partner is on like one of the captives on there. So, like, she is actively involved in freeing them. Yeah. Which is, you know. She is the rescuer. A great arc. She she comes alive at this book, and at the first you just think it's because, you know, the raiders have, she's seen the horrible things that they've done and barely escaped from them with her life, and then you realise it's also because they have taken her husband and he's still there. And you're like, wow, okay, this is awesome. I mean, obviously it's awful, but also kind of awesome. Anyway, this escalates until Milo has his moment where he's, he speaks and says, no, Mao is the chief, because Mao comes forward and says, I'm the chief, you've got to fight me. And Milo speaks to back him up. And says more in that moment than he said in the entire two months that have passed <laughs> in the book. Uh, and it's great. His, his little speech is fantastic. I loved it. And so it's on. Cox is going to fight Mal, but Daphne's really worried because he has, in the meantime, between the mutiny and coming here with the raiders, managed to take a Dutch ship and taken a revolver off the captain of that ship. So he can now shoot multiple times. It's not like he's got a gun that he fires once and then he has to reload it. So she's like, oh, no, you're going to die. But Mal starts off by fighting dirty, throws sand in his face. Uh, and I love this sort of justification for this, that there's no rules. And the fight starts when someone picks up their weapons. And he's like, well, I didn't tell, I didn't have to tell them that my weapon was sand. <laughs> was like, That's so good. Uh, you bend those rules, man. Um and he runs straight into the oceans. He's like, well, I can't just run around on land. This guy's going to shoot me. But he's wearing heavy trouserman clothes. I might have a chance if I'm in the sea. And, and he just swims away. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just swims off into the, the sea. End. He's never seen again. But no, and they have this great fight, which is just I mean, such an epic. Oh, it's so well written. I mean, like sometimes action sequences in books just don't work. 
most of Pratchett's ones are good. There's a few that he's written that are a bit like confusing. Like I don't necessarily think the duel at the end of Mort really works. Like why doesn't they just cut him in half? Like I don't, it doesn't quite make mm. sense, but this one, this is gold. This is amazing. And down all the stuff, like he's hiding under the water when he's getting shot at and the bullets slow down when they hit the water and he's able to avoid them. And he's surprised by this and he sort of reaches out and touches one. It's a bit like, it reminded me of that scene in one of the X-Men movies with Quicksilver where, you know, he goes so fast that he just sort of taps the bullets out of the path of other people because he's moving so quickly compared to them. Or, and it's soup. Or, yes, Neo in the Matrix, as Charlotte was just miming on the, on the video <laughs> link there. That was very good. I'm glad you got that. It builds up to this climax. He's hiding in this tree that's washed up in the lagoon. And he does get shot in the ear, which sounds horrendously painful. Like his ear is ruined and there's blood everywhere. And that's attracting the sharks. The sharks are coming. And he realizes Cox has climbed out onto the tree. And he says, oh, it's got big beams. I'm a sailor. I can climb on this. And he, he's like, okay, well, I could swim underneath him and maybe I could get him with my knife. But he's lost his knife. And then realizes that the tree that he's hiding in and that Cox has climbed onto is the tree from the boys' island. And it still has his axe jammed into it so he uses all his strength he grabs it and it's just such a great oh it just felt so triumphant and earned and he pulls it out and just buries it in cox's chest and i don't think any of us were really concerned about cox's well-being at this point isn't Um, it kind of the theme like previously it was like men help men it's like the previous people of the nation like would leave the axe for him and he left the axe for the next person but his whole thing has now been him helping himself to build something new so he literally pulls out the axe and just does that like it's yeah perfect yeah it's perfect yeah absolutely and then the look on cox's face when he's hit oh yeah genuinely happy, pleased, impressed, proud, something that is probably one of the most pure emotions or more pure emotions that we would expect Cox to have or not expect Cox to have. Mm. I almost wonder if he's being tormented by who he is in, mm. and in that moment there's that relief of, oh, I finally got what I've had coming to me for all this time. Yeah. It's a strange moment. I think it's good that it's not explained as well because there's that repeated idea that if you could understand Cox, then you'd be just like him and that would be horrendous. So, it's just as well we don't get him. Mm. And so, that's one last moment of why Why are you like this? <laughs> like, yeah. I read it as him getting killed while being smug. Oh, yeah. Like caught in the last moment of assuming he was going to win, but I like the other reading better. Yeah. The aftermath is also quite fascinating because Mal sort of goes to see the other raiders and he has this sort of experience of Lokaha, the god of death, surrounding him and giving him this aura where in that moment, if he touched any of the raiders, they would just die. And so they all are afraid of him and do exactly what he says. So they leave all of the captives behind and they run away, but no one else really sees that happen. And so again, it's not clear if it really has but he also has the conversation with Lokaha who tells him that, hey, you've earned my respect. Do you want to come to the perfect world? Because that's part of the, the creation story is that he now decides who gets to go to Imo's other world, which is perfect. And Mao thinks about it and he turns him down. He's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. Look, there's all these people I can help and we need to make this world perfect. And that's when Lokaha says, well, you know, there's, it's interesting because everyone I've ever offered this to has said the same thing. But also, there's lots of worlds. And he basically explains the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics 
a favorite of Terry's to Mao. And Mao's like, oh, so there's like a world where things did not happen. And there's also another world where they did happen. And he kind of relates it back to his did not happen um, idea, which I thought was great. So that, that was, that was a nice moment. But then once the Raiders are gone and the unknown woman, now the paper vine woman has retrieved her husband, uh, Daphne's sort of looking after some of them by amputating various bits to keep them alive. And she's talking to Mao and they're having another nice little moment. So they've, they've had their previous moment where they almost say that they love each other and it could have turned into a romance. And now they're having another touching moment, but it's not quite the same. And, uh, Mao sees that her father's boat has arrived. And this, it's such a beautiful reunion. And the way that they sort of talk about it, I mean, she schools him and there's a whole thing that we'll get into where she talks to him about what's going to happen next. But they have uh, what she describes as there should be a word for honeymoon, but it means, you know, a beautiful time that you have between a parent and a child or a father and a daughter. And he like, I get it. Like, yeah, this is beautiful. And they spend like this two weeks just her showing him all of the glorious bits of the island and him getting to, you know, understand a bit of the language and the culture and getting drunk with the men on the beer and teaching them to play cricket and seeing all the wonderful things that she's learned and learning what her life has been like. And it's, it does sound just like paradise, really. It sounds yeah. great. But she also really has a word to him and says, like, don't plant your flag here. Don't turn this into part of the British Empire. And there's something you've got to see. And she shows him the cave of the ancestors and all of the wondrous things there and tells him about all her theories about what it means. It's like, look, I think they had telescopes. Look, because they understood the planets. And look, there's a picture of Jupiter here and you can see the moons and she finds some eyeglasses and she's like, look, they made these eyeglasses. And he's like going, look, yes, this all seems very plausible, but you can't know this for sure. And she, he's reminding her very much of all the sort of very strict interpretation of how you need to, you know, document all this and prove it's true. And so she's like, okay, we'll get some scientists here. We'll, let's do it. I want to do it. And Mao's been thinking about this and what he's going to do. And he's been told a bit about what's been going on with the Royal Society and Newton and all these people when Daphne showed him the chamber earlier on. And he comes up with this great idea. I mean, I, I did not see this coming. Like, I was like, what is this compromise going to be between them? What is he going to ask for? And I did not expect it to be, we don't want to be part of your empire, but can we join the Royal Society, please? <laughs> Which I thought was great. And he doesn't really say please. He basically says, that's what, that's what we want. Um, and you can have this gold from the doors. And in return, we would like this long list of things, including a nice boat and uh, a telescope and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> and a shrubbery. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very cool. I really liked that. And I love that he asks for doctrine. Oh. And then the, the priest steps in, the, the bishop from the, the local, from Port Messia, where her, her father's been the governor, steps in and goes, oh, I could do something about this. And he goes, no, no, not religion, doctrine, doctrine. And he means medicine and, yeah. and, and medical supplies. Oh, such a good pun. Oh, oh it's the best. That was great. If you didn't pick up on that, Liz. <laughs> but, but this is also, in between, you should say, this is when the gentlemen of last resort finally turn up and they crown Daphne's father king. And so he has the authority to do what he wants and he, he grants Mao's wishes. He says, yep, you can have all that stuff and sure. Seeing as it's got royal in the name, I think I can decide that you are members of the Royal Society. And he tells the grandma off finally. Oh, yeah, because yeah. she's come with him. Because so we don't know who the extra passenger is at the start of the book. And then she gets off the boat and Daphne's like, oh, no. 
what has she done? Yeah. <laughs> That's the moment where she's like, has my grandmother done something terrible? <laughs> so good. She's killed all these people. Yes. She believes it could be true. Oh, it's so good. I believe it could be true. If she had a way of doing it, she'd yeah. do it. Maybe she brought the Russian influenza to the UK. Oh, no. Let's not go down that road. <laughs> um, but look, Daphne also comes to the realisation that her dad doesn't have anyone else. He's got to go back to England. He's going to need her. And she wants to go with him, you know, and be there to support him. So she's got to leave. And so they say goodbye. And she goes. And that's the end of the story, except for the epilogue, which is just titled Today, where we skip forward to presumably the early 21st century. We don't know. There's no years in this book, but presumably around now. And the modern nation, which is now full of telescopes, like big, big telescopes and observatories and is a, a center for science and scientific research, particularly astronomy, it seems. They don't talk much about the rest of it, but, you know, there's a lot of telescopes there. And there's someone has been telling this story to two young people of the nation who are like, what? What? You mean that's where the story ends? They just leave? They don't end up together? And he's like, yeah, well, that's how it happens. Uh, it's real life for you. <laughs> you don't get these nice uh, uh, tied up in a bow endings. And it's just a, it's just a lovely look. I did not expect that. And I really enjoyed this sort of little rumination on where the nation would go and how the traditions have been kept alive. Because the the thing that these two have to do as this sort of rite of passage is uh, go and be the people who are on guard for the nation, just like Mao was doing when everyone was in trouble. And you're like, oh, this is that's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's such a perfect way to end the book. Yeah. So that's nation. I said this at the start, but seriously... It's gone straight up into my faves. Such a great book. So great. And just so many little things. Like, I think, you know, as as always, I think if we went through all of our favorite bits, we'd be here for another hour or more. But um, but I'm sure there's a few little ones that we want to say that we haven't mentioned as we've gone through. Because there's so many little bits and nuances. And, I mean, listeners, if you if there's a favorite bit you want to share with us, please tweet it at us. Put it on the Facebook. The hashtag for this episode is Pratchett41. We want to know what your favorite bits are too, because a lot of people, as Liz said, came out of the woodwork when we said we were doing it and said, oh, that's my favorite. And we were like, wow, this is lots of people's favorite. We should have read this way earlier. Um, <laughs> I've only been telling you since the beginning, Ben, but sure. We, had we so should have many. listened. <laughs> also, you know, but in our defense, though, I don't think you want to do the best ones at the start. No. Like, I, I had this advice. Someone was like, oh, read this book. It's like, it's this, it's this author's best book. And I'm like, why would I read the best one first? Then every other one will be less good than that. Um, I should read, like, an interesting one first and build up to the best one. So I'm glad we didn't read it right at the start. Would leave us nowhere to go. So um, now we know but- that Ben is a man that eats the peas before he gets to the steak. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. Well, I don't eat the steak anymore, but, you know. Well, uh, yeah, okay. Yes. The, 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 the tofu. The uh, tofu, yeah. The yeah. delicious the mushroom tofu. steak. The tofu, the tofu baking. Uh, if you want the recipe for that, look in the show notes for our previous episode. Yes. Sounds delicious. I haven't made it yet, but I will. Sounds delicious. That's good. Um, but what are, what are some of our other favorite bits that we didn't quite get to in our discussion? There's too many good ones. Like one of my favorite lines is about how, like, the, if you eat the roots without cooking them, they'll go, you'll go mad. The pigs eat them without, without cooking them, but I don't think they notice if they go mad, which I thought was <laughs> kind of great. Yeah, that was um, amazing. And the father having a look of having been thoroughly daughtered. That was, was very good. <laughs> that was great. Uh, my yeah. two favorites. I love the 
the descriptions of the 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 animals that don't exist in our own yeah. universe. So there's the sailfin crocodile and the the um, tree climbing octopus and yes. <laughs> which is apparently like it's one of those hoax slash everyone hopes it's true kind of things that people actually do talk about and claim that they've seen. Like, I think in a similar way that we talk about drop bears or hoop snakes, you know, I think there's, there's people on the island who so are like, yeah, I've seen a trick climbing octopus. Uh, it'll drop on your head and eat your face. That's great. Um, and there's like, if you Google it, there's some great fake photos of them, some of which are clearly made from fruit or something. I don't know. But yeah, I love that. And the, the fact that one comes back at the end and is the pet of the guy who's telling yes. the story and he like gets it to count to five before he feeds it because <laughs> they're very smart. Oh. I love them so much. I wish they were real. <laughs> I want one. I want them. Well, octopuses are pretty smart, so you could probably teach one. You could. They are smart. Yeah. They could. They can definitely learn to count. Yeah. There's so many good. Oh, I, like I mean, I mentioned the the right now. He gave it his bum line <laughs> when he sits on the the thing, <laughs> the god anchor. That was great. There's a moment where they're describing the mutiny and, and definitely sort of recounting it. Cox shot things because they were alive, but to him, that was just killing time. He had greater ambitions for the captain. He wanted to shoot him in the faith. <laughs> it was like, until I read it aloud to myself, I didn't catch the pun. And I was like, oh, no, this is great. I think that might be my favorite ever Pratchett pun. Shoot him in the faith. I think that's that's incredible. But also the whole thing about Cookie, the cook on the ships, on the Sweet Judy's uh, coffin that he's outfitted to survive in at sea. Yes. Inspired by another sailor who carried a coffin with him everywhere in case he died so he could be properly buried instead of just thrown overboard. And he's like, oh, that's a good idea, but I'm going to make my coffin so I can live in it. So that's (laughs) actually a reference back to Moby Dick. Oh, is it? There's a a character that does that in Moby Dick, yeah. Ah. And we're going to get very quickly out of my depth here because I've never actually read it, but I've I've looked into it and I have a friend who loves Moby Dick and when I was explaining to him this story, because, you know, it's sort of one of those almost childlike things to do to try and, you know, let's, let's, sure, let's design our own boat for if our if our own ship capsizes, this is the boat that will allow us to survive. It's made yeah. out of a coffin. Um, and he said, what, you mean like in Moby Dick? So, yeah, it actually apparently is a, an allusion to Moby Dick there. Well, I haven't read it either, and I was just wondering, because, like, Cookie mentions being on another, like, another <gasps> voyage. Right. And I was wondering if that was that voyage. Like, cause I was like, is this alluding to like another book where like, he's like, Oh, it probably didn't turn out well for them. Cause like I had to like, he got off the boat cause he was sick. But I was wondering if that was like referring to another famous like boat story. So maybe that is, that is that. Well, I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it past Pratchett. There's an excerpt from an interview that's been doing the rounds on social media in which he talks about fantasy as a genre and how it's the er genre. Like all stories were fantasy once upon a time. And now most stories still are if you think about them the right way. And he's talking about, I don't know what the US canon is like, but if you're thinking about Moby Dick, that's definitely a fantasy. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So he clearly has read it and it's been on his mind. So mm. I, I reckon that is definitely a reference. That's great. Yeah. Just briefly, I really like the story of the Raiders Club where you become stronger after you've heard the story of the chief who beat the Raiders. And then Mal wonders, you know, maybe the story is not magical, but it's just like that there's some trick that they use. And... Just that there's a great footnote. There's some really good footnotes in this, but I think one of the best ones is the one about Jesus and the um, disciples where uh, Daphne says, 
She was quite sure there had been a female disciple because, as she explained to a surprised Captain Roberts, our Lord is always shown wearing white, and someone must have seen to it that he always had a clean robe. <laughs> like, yeah. And it, which, like, parallel to, like, uh, that scene in uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail where the, the, the king rides past and someone says, oh, it must have been a king. He says, why? He didn't have shit all over him. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, someone's keeping that king clean. You just know it. <laughs> But look, those are some great bits. Any other bits before we, we get on to some questions? Uh, I have a favourite line. Um, yeah, it's actually it? right at the beginning. It's at the end of the first chapter when Mao is cold and very tired and fearful and is crying um, because only he knows that the wave has come and washed his, his nation away. And it says, Light died in the west. Night and tears took the nation. The star of water drifted among the clouds like a murderer, softly leaving the scene of the crime. And it's sort of, again, that tying together of our faith in in something external, those allusions to the stars again. I just really like that line. Yeah, it is beautiful. And I think it's a great example of where Pratchett doesn't just write great gags. He really does write this beautiful evocative prose at just the right moment. And I think he's got a really fine balance for showing and telling. Like some, he knows when to use a metaphor and when to just describe what's going on. And speaking of metaphors, one last one that I want to mention that recurs throughout the book, the whole thing with the little blue hermit crabs, where that's how Mao starts to see himself as he was crawling out of his boy's life. And in fact, he's, he's given that little blue like stone to wear on the string around his wrist, which represents that sort of hermit crab existence. And he's coming back to the island to get into the bigger shell. And it becomes this metaphor for how he's trying to find where he's going to fit in the world because his world, he keeps getting bigger and not necessarily physically, but you know, mentally his, his psychological world and his knowledge is expanding and now he's got to figure out what shell he's going to fit into. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. But look, we did get some great questions from our listeners, so we should get into those so we can try and answer as many as possible. I think, Liz, it's probably fair to say we will not have time for them all because we've got so many good ones. And it's tough to choose which ones because they are all so great. Yeah. But um, we'll we'll do our best, and we're sorry if your really good question doesn't come through. Yeah. Um, we'll try and answer it another way if possible, but yeah. Okay, let's start with this one from Ian via Discord. My question is more about my reaction to the book than anything else. Does anyone else find it to be one of the best books about atheism ever? So I don't actually think it's a book about atheism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it is either. But it can be read that way. I mean, it's certainly about questioning faith, but that's not necessarily the same thing as atheism. Hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's more like I liked what you were saying at the start, Charlotte. It's, it's about faith and about science at the same time. And I think it's a very accurate representation of, well, certainly of the things you go through when questioning faith and trying to figure out what it is that you believe. Which is, yeah, it's different to atheism. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I think that's certainly an interesting read on it because, like, if you did go into it ha- with that lens, like, I think it would bring up some interesting questions. I agree that I don't think it is a book about it, but I do think it probes some pertinent questions in that arena. I think it's, I think it's a better book about atheism than many books that are actually about atheism. <laughs> mm. um, <laughs> because, you know, and, and I am, I am an atheist myself, you know, but I, try to have an open mind about it because I think believing that there is nothing supernatural can't be proven, you know, and mm. and while that doesn't affect mostly my day-to-day life, it does mean that I don't tell people that they're wrong <laughs> for believing differently to me. For me, it's about what you do with that belief and mm. uh, how you behave as a person in the world 
and that can be informed for good or ill by any kind of belief. You know, mm. there's plenty of atheists who do shit things. Um, yes. And, and some of them informed by their absolute unshakable belief that they are right. This book's not about that, but I think it is the kind of book that reading it will cause you to think about the things that you believe in, in a way that will be useful to you. Yeah, agreed. Because I don't think Mao ends up the book thinking there's no gods, there's no Lokaha. Like, he keeps talking to Lokaha. He clearly believes that the gods exist. But it changes his relationship to them and what he thinks of them. Hmm. To paraphrase Dorfel in Feet of Clay, atheism is a religious position. An atheist thinks of the gods or God constantly, albeit in terms of denial. Therefore, atheism is a form of belief. If anything, this book promotes a healthy questioning of and about faith and the function of religion, but not a denial of gods or God. All right, um, so this next question comes from Elizabeth Phelps via Facebook, who sent through a few great questions, so we're unfortunately only going to have time for one of them. What does this book owe to Lord of the Flies and perhaps Heart of Darkness? While clearly so much more wonderful, would Nation be as good and somehow healing, if that's not too precious a way of putting it, if these had not come before? I can't speak to that question because I haven't read Lord of the Flies or Heart of Darkness. I am not well read. I read them both in school. And I've read Lord of the Flies, so between us we can come up with an answer. Yeah, and look, as previously mentioned on this podcast, I hated Lord of the Flies so much I wrote a limerick about it. How dare you? It is the best. Um, we differ on this, <laughs> uh, but I might like it if I read it again now. Yeah, you probably would because you're wrong about it being bad. Yeah, look, possibly. I think <laughs> this is a... I don't know that this owes a debt to Lord of the Flies. I think it's a nice contrast in that, you know, the people here on the island, even when there's only two of them and they're young people, they just get on with looking after each other and building something that will work rather than, you know, the chaos that ensues and the, the sort of horrible patriarchal structure that is created and then falls apart in the Lord of the Flies because it can't be sustained because it's all based on aggression and power. And I don't remember Heart of Darkness super well, but I, I kind of know what the question is getting at. Those are books about Europeans coming into a new world, into an island sort of chain and imposing their own ideas and beliefs on that space and bringing their own culture with them, usually for horribleness. And I, I think this is an answer to that. I mean, Terry talked about in interviews how he had a burning need to write this book. Like, he, he didn't just think, this will be fun. He was like, I have to write this book. And he also talked about how he didn't have the tools to write it. He had to go away and research and learn what he needed to know to be able to write it. So, he was taking it very seriously. And I think, you know, it'd be, I, I really want to read more about those thoughts he had around that time. I've read Lord of the Flies. I haven't read Heart of Darkness. It's hard, like, in the same way that any book owes a debt to all literature that's come before it. I think there's that. But in terms of literally what it owes to Lord of the Flies, I would argue that perhaps not as much as we might initially think. Because I did find myself thinking about Lord of the Flies quite regularly throughout this book. I thought about Blue Lagoon as well, because it was also mm. quite a lot of that vibe. But I think if you're trying to write a book looking at key issues of a society, if you're not going to create a disc world, putting your characters on an island is one really effective way of doing that. And authors have done that across literature for a really long time. So I think it's easy to draw comparisons between books set on islands, mm. but they're not necessarily interrelated or even built upon each other or referencing each other. It's just a way of isolating your characters to give them a blank slate. 
I think it's a really great question because there are so many different ways to come at it in terms of literally the words on the page and the story. I think not much at all. I think in terms of what Ben was saying about like how it tackles colonialism and subverts, perhaps like the stories have come before quite a bit. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. And that tradition goes back way further, like all the way back to Robinson Crusoe. And, and mm. there's probably ones older than that that I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very much, it feels, I agree. It feels like an antidote in some ways to those stories. Yeah. So I think this feeds into this theme of questions. So you got it from both Ilbion via Twitter and Caro via Twitter. So Ilbion asked, I think trying to step away from Eurocentrism when you're a European or a white writer and finding a voice for another culture and making it feel authentic is a huge challenge. How do you feel he did? And I wanted to also ask Caro's question with this, because I think we should consider them together. I absolutely love this book, but I'd really like to hear a Pacific Islander's perspective on it. So was inventing a nation and a culture appropriate? Could this book ever be adapted into a film or are there too many challenges? And how do you feel about the resolution? I don't think we can necessarily answer every facet of all those questions, but I think they're worth considering together, so we might tackle it that way. I mean, yeah, it's impossible to speak on behalf of, you know, any other culture, obviously. And I am a white man, so, you know, take whatever I think about this with uh, a whole heap of salt. But it feels like he's really gone out of his way to treat what is a fictionalized version of a real culture. Like, it feels very based on, you know, real Pacific Islander cultures from the little that I know, which is not heaps, but I've, I've learned a little bit. And he's tried to treat them with immense respect. Whether he's successful or not, I don't think it's for me to say or to judge. And I, I would also really love to hear that perspective. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with I agree with what you said um, and would add that I think he's probably, insofar as a white man can do of a particular generation at this time and in this place, um, done the best that he can do. Um, and it might be that, a year from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, we look back and, and see it differently. Um, but but it, it's, I think it's an admirable attempt at this time and in this place. And I think it's worth saying too that it feels like a massive, massive improvement and like a huge distance from how he's writing about other cultures in books like Interesting Times or Jingo. Or other books where, you know, he's really, while they are fictional versions of those cultures, they're really drawing on real world stereotypes and archetypes that they're not great, you know. And, and I want to acknowledge too that that's something where I would love to hear people from those cultures. I'd love to hear what their perspective is on some of those books. And that's something that, you know, we could probably try and do better with on, on this podcast. But again, you know, we can only speak from our own perspective. Um, but we would love to give a platform to someone else's perspective if anyone would like to share it with us. So we'll, we'll put that out there. Um, so the next question I think leads on in, in a different way is from Tom Saunders via Twitter. This could have been a standalone Discworld book set out near, near the Petrobi Island or some such. Do you think it needs to be that step closer to reality or could it have worked just as well on the disc? I think we've kind of discussed this a little bit because, mm. like, on the disc there are definitely gods, so the question of belief is not – it's kind of answered. Mm. So that aspect of the book wouldn't work as well. I think it would have been a very different book. I think it could have still been a great book done that way, but I think it would have been a very different book and great for different reasons. I think having it this step closer to reality helps us to situate 
ourselves in it more. The Discworld novels hold up a, a mirror to ourselves in, in this sort of very much a parallel kind of universe, but this little step closer to reality just it, it makes it so much more plausible. Um, we can assume the same rules and laws are in operation in the nation's universe as exist in our universe, where we can't assume that in the disc world. Um, so I think it, it, I think it did need to be that step closer to reality. Also, shout out mm. to Tom and his wife Lizzie, who I know are listening, um, or will be listening. I don't think anyone's yeah. done a shout out on the podcast before. I'm very, I'm very happy that this has happened. Hello, Tom and Lizzie. <laughs> Sorry, my next question, my next question, not for you, no. Um, so the next question <laughs> comes from Neil Weber via Twitter who asked a few good ones, but Neil says that at work they play Desert Island books and that one of their colleagues selected Nation. So Neil's question is, is it the perfect Terry selection or have you got another contender? Oh, this is this is just like that other podcast, Desert Island Discworld, which is, which is a great title for a podcast. I don't know if we've given them a shout out, but... Uh, check them out. They they seem to be great. I try not to listen to other Discworld podcasts. You know, I want to come in fresh with my, our opinions, but uh, but it seems like it's doing well. So maybe check it out. I don't know. What do you think? Is this the best one? If you were going to just have one, I don't think there is a best. It's a good one though. It might be a good one to have if you were stranded on a desert island, though. <laughs> Yeah, but like I don't know. There's a lot you can get out of it. Like you could reread it over and over again and get something different every time. That's so that true. Is a strong, strong part. You've done that, Charlotte. Yes, I've read this at least a couple of dozen times. No lie, this is a book that I. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a science teacher, so to me, this contains a lot of opportunities to unpack what science is and how it works and and why it works and when it doesn't and all of those sorts of things. You know, all of the the principles and nature of science. So. You know, I do get something different out of it every single time. But um, it's my favourite, but it's not necessarily the one I'd recommend to everybody. Mm, hmm. That's fair. Actually, on that question, we, we sort of didn't touch on that much. How, I mean, what is the science in the book like? I mean, it's I love that they kind of come up with these scientific explanations for things that you could just leave without them. Or do they? I would argue that when Daphne is hypothesizing and she's thinking about the beer and how the, the beer is made from the mother of beer, she doesn't actually come up with a meaningful hypothesis. No. She doesn't mm. identify the variables. She does test them systematically, but there's no real um, discussion about what she's choosing to test and why she's choosing to test it. And she doesn't ultimately come to a conclusion about that. She doesn't work out that if this is according to the laws of our own universe, that it's because there is probably some kind of enzyme in her spit, which is turning something that is poisonous, a, a compound that is poisonous in the mother of beer into something that is not poisonous. She works out that it's something to do with the time, but she doesn't get why the spitting is necessary. She doesn't come up with a testable idea per se. Mm. Um, there's a couple of other times, though, where she comes close. So when she's explaining to her father why she thinks that it's possible and plausible that the um, people of the nation developed telescopes. She is actually constructing quite a strong argument, um, using, uh, evidence that's there and, and using strong reasoning, um, for why that's a reasonable expectation. But, um, 
it, as, as her father says, that's not necessarily proof. And again, proof is a word I would actually avoid in science because science doesn't prove anything. It just mm. attempts to build models that help us to understand the world. So yes and no, I think it's, it's beautiful in that it actually deals much more with what it is to be a human in science. Science as a human endeavor, we call it in the Australian curriculum. It's talking about why it is that science is fallible, why it is that we must be tentative, all of those sorts of things. So I think it goes a long way and much better than any other novel I've ever read. Um, in terms of imaginative texts about science, this is just so beautifully on message. But at the same time, there are some ways I would have liked to have gone further in terms of actually explaining that science deals with the natural and physical world. It doesn't actually deal with the metaphysical world. Mm. Metaphysical questions are outside of science. Um, so those sorts of things. But he, he navigates through that really well too. Yeah. So this question comes from Grace via email. So the part in the book where Daphne is helping with the birth of the baby and yells at the men to leave, it says she felt better for all that. A good shout at somebody always makes you feel better and in control, especially if you aren't. I've always loved this line, but it's been really tainted after having Trump as president. For context, I live in the south of the US. Do you feel that some people have tainted Terry Pratchett in that way for either of you? Like it's okay when Pratchett said it, but it's not okay when anyone else does. Oh, this is such a good question because I, I think this really fits in with some of the stuff that we were talking about at the end of The Fifth Elephant and indeed all the watch books, like because you want to love vibes and his devotion to good policing. But then now we live in a world where we realize that maybe policing is always going to end up not great. And I think the fact that people have done that to the idea of, of the police force and what it stands for and what it actually does, they have kind of made it a little bit hard, sometimes very hard, to enjoy anything where the protagonists are police officers. I have very similar troubled feelings about even Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which if you've never seen it, is this, is one of the most joyful and positive and life affirming sitcoms. And yet they're all, they're all cops and they, they maybe have two or three episodes that address some of the things that means that being a cop is not great. <laughs> I think that one is the biggest one for me. But Vimes is kind of like, you know, you get the feeling that if he was a cop now in the real world, he'd be quitting the force and doing everything he could to reform it. Um, and possibly dismantling it because it no longer is the thing that he stood for. So I think that's the big one for me. I don't think anyone has tainted Pratchett for me. I think there's, I love that we can engage in critical discussion about his writing and particularly how it's evolved and changed and how Pratchett grew as an author into new ways of thinking and doing. I love that you can see a difference between his early novels and his later novels. It would be hard to taint it. What would taint Pratchett? for me, would be if we discovered something awful about who he was as a human. And by all accounts, I can't imagine that happening in the same way that we see it happen with other figures. I mean, Trump was always Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an important context with the shouting thing too, is that, you know, Daphne's shouting to let something out. She's not in a position of power over people that she's shouting at and abusing them. So I, um, I hope that you can turn this around, Grace, <laughs> because, uh, you know, don't let, don't let an awful person ruin something beautiful for you. Mm. Um, I think, I think, yeah, Pratchett is not talking about the kind of shouting that Trump does when he writes that line about Daphne. 
it's not for Trump. He doesn't get that. So don't let him ruin He's it He's not for punching you. down. No, yeah. definitely not. Yeah. Um, so to round out, we'll ask a few shorter questions. So this is from Sally Jean via Facebook. What do you think the beer tastes like? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, yeah. is, it, is it beer or is it like something that they call beer? I don't know. I it's beer. I reckon like mother beer is yeast of some kind. It's, I, I would love to know if this is based on any real thing that anybody does anywhere in the world. But I, I don't know. I reckon it probably tastes uh, salty. I reckon hoppy, like real hoppy, like almost uncomfortably so. Yeah. I don't know. Beer requires ingredients that fermenting other products does not. Mm. Um, and they never allude to any kind of wheat or grain on the island. It must be there, like it, hum, where humans exist, grains are. But I don't know whether – I don't know. I have no idea. I would expect that it's probably more like a fermented root vegetable mm. than an actual beer. But Daphne is naive enough that she would put all alcohols into one category of the demon drink and yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's beer or – vodka or sake or, you know, any of the other sort of more traditional fermented drinks, Yeah, um, she'd probably still call it beer and so that's the way it comes across in the book. But beer is probably the most accessible too in terms of younger readers. Yeah, true. Mm. But it's, yeah, because it's like on the island they call it beer as well, but like, I mean. We don't know what her father calls it. And he does try some. So I think he, if, if we'd heard his opinion of it, we probably would have got a description of what it was like. I, you know, I've decided I changed my mind. I don't think it's salty. I think, I think it might be very sweet. I think, I think maybe it's, it tastes very fruity. I don't know why that is. I just decided that in my brain now it tastes a bit like ginger beer, but, but wrong. <laughs> I don't know why. That's just what's popped in there. Hmm. Sorry, I was just like Googling Carver to see if that could be Carver, that's what it. I was trying to think of before. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, but it seems like it has different effects. But I mean, yeah, it's probably closer to that than actual beer, I suspect. Mm. Next question comes from Rin Bettencourt via Facebook. So after finishing Nation and having a good weep about how amazing it is, what would you curse your ancestors for? Mal yells at his ancestors at the King Cave. I would yell at mine for my weak stomach. So what would you yell at your ancestors for giving you? Oh. Man, Deep a long body and short legs. Um, that's Are we genetics. The same? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds feel, like it. I feel like it's too real. Like if I if I'm cursing, I don't want to actually curse my actual grandfather, who who sadly died when I was quite young. So it feels mean because he gave me many good things. He gave me a good appreciation for comedy and early rock and roll, and uh, reasonably broad shoulders, but also things like probably depression <laughs> um, and various. Like, and bald, I'm finally starting to go bald. Sorry, listeners, if you've been imagining with a full head of hair. I still have most of my hair, but I am starting to go bald. And he was bald. So I feel like I might curse him for that. But not a, only in a friendly way. My grandfathers were pretty good to me, really. Yeah, I think I've been pretty lucky in general. I'm Jewish. So, you know, a lot of my ancestors were lucky to even be ancestors, mm. really. Yeah. Due to long history of persecution and other fun things like that. So yeah, yeah. I'm I've I've been relatively lucky, I guess. I mean if I had to pick something, like I feel very lucky as well. But my exceptionally bad singing voice, perhaps. <laughs> like it is 
beyond the realms of normal that. And I know we had a guest who was like, you can learn and you can train and stuff. And I believe that's true for almost everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been in choirs and stuff. I've tried. It is, if anything, gotten worse. Oh. So like, I'm sorry, Niff, if you're listening, this is not my I think you're right. I promise. <laughs> the exception that proves the rule. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Oh no. All right. So I think we've got time for one last question. This one comes from Sven via discord. What advice would you give if you are a grumpy old ancestor spirit? Oh no, it's like the reverse. Um, Oh wow! Like, what's something you wish you could have told yourself? Like, oh, so many. When you were things. younger, perhaps. So many things. He's not worth it. Oh, that's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I would probably twist that around and go, "You're not worth it," <laughs> because I needed to hear that at several times in my life, so that I would not end up being someone that someone would say he's not worth it about, which I know that some people probably would say. And quite reasonably so. So, yes, too many things. Oh, man. I'm just trying to think. There's too many things to choose from, aren't there? Well, well, imagine you do have, like, ancestors many, many generations from now, and they're lost and confused. What one bit of advice, you know, what's, it doesn't have to be the best bit, but just what's one thing that you would say to them? Maybe give less of a shit about things that don't really matter. Oh, that's good. Yeah, just, just, you don't have to not care at all. Just like, just less about the things that really won't impact yeah, in a big way. Find the appropriate level of shit to give. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's very good advice. I'd stand by that. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I feel like that's a good way to deliver it grumpily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd still tell them that he's not worth it. <laughs> On the basis that it is almost 100% likely to be true at some yeah. point. Yeah. What about give less of a shit about him? Hey. Mm. There it is. Yep. Yep. No, I dig that. I mean, it's so hard now to imagine the future. I can't, I don't have a silver string beyond the next year or two because this world that we live in now is so different from even a year ago because it's it's 51 weeks since we went into national lockdown mm. as we record this. So it's I kind of hope that this is enough to drive a wedge deeper into the patriarchy and to the, the structures and systems that are pretty shit, yeah. for want of a better word. Yeah, so I don't know if that – I kind of hope that I don't have to give the advice that he's not worth it because – We've dismantled patriarchy and moved along with things. I'm optimistic. Maybe naively so. so. Yeah. I hope so. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but those are some amazing questions. And we got more that we just don't have time to answer. I- I'll mention it in passing that someone asked about the National Theatre production. I have not seen it. I don't think you've seen it either. I wish I could have, though. I'd- this is the first I'm hearing about it. And I hope it comes around again. I am torn on it because there were a lot of people who loved it and there were a lot of reviews that said it was terrible. So who knows? But look, there were so many great questions that we don't have time to answer. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you, what should they do? I guess they could contact me on Twitter, which would be at Dialogic Edu. Mm-hmm. Or they could Google me. I have quite a unique name. I'm the only one with that name. So, unfortunately, 
Um, I am very searchable, um, which leads me back to he's not worth it. Um, but that's a longer story that we don't have time for. <laughs> oh, no. um, well, look, we'll, we'll also link to your website and your Twitter in our show notes so that people with legitimate reasons to be interested in Charlotte can look her up. And if we find out anybody is doing that for not, we will, it is not, that's not okay. Please don't. It's going to be bad. Thanks. But look, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you also to all of you listening. We got such a deluge of great questions as we sometimes do, but we really got, if I dare use this as a metaphor, a tsunami of amazing questions um, (laughs) that have washed over us, but we were not destroyed by them. We we have come back stronger than ever, just as the nation did. But thank you all so much. Thank you too, to our supporters who subscribe. You really help us to make the show every month. If you want to support us, you can do that with money, but also you can just give us a rating or a review on something. You might want to do that on uh, the Apple podcast directory, or you might want to do it on Podchaser, which is a website I keep forgetting to mention. It's like the IMDB of podcasts. So if you like us, you can go on there and tell people that you like us there. That, that'd be nice. And do check out some of the other Discworld podcasts. As this is published, we will have just been on a, a lovely panel for a Welsh Discworld event called the uh, Lamados Holiday Camp which has gone online this year. So it's called Lamados on the Clacks. And uh, we will be on a panel, which will have already happened by the time you hear this. Uh, but I'm pretty sure there'll be guests also on the panel from the podcast uh, Radio Morpork and The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, both great Discworld podcasts who are doing a similar thing to us, but they're reading just the Discworld books for the most part. But that should be fun. So do listen into that if you get a chance. But we will be back again next month, as always. Liz, we're going back to the Discworlds. What are we going to yeah. talk about? I don't know, but to tell you the truth, it's the truth. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Another favourite of many, many people. And we're very happy to have our returning guest, Stephanie Convery, coming back uh, to give us a journalistic perspective. Um, She's now an author. She's had a book published since she was last on the podcast, and she's worked as a journalist for The Guardian for quite a long time. So we're sure she has a brilliant perspective on what happens in the truth. We're really looking forward to that. I have not read it for so long, but I I really love it. There's some great characters who who only show up as cameos later on, so I'm really glad to go back and see them. So send us in your questions if you've got any questions about the truth on the hashtag Pratchat42. It is our 42nd episode, and I actually, it comes out days after I turn 42. There you go, listener. Now you know exactly how old I am. It's the answer. So uh, I'm very excited about that. Thank you very much for coming on this journey with us. We hope you read the book if you haven't read it before. It truly is a gem. And until next time, may you find a bigger shell to crawl into. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Charlotte Pizarro. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett41. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.